the garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990, powered by Palladio Home and Garden, with your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Mid-South Gardening. Glad you're here with us this morning, and we're glad we're with you. <laughs> yeah, well, we're all glad Listen we're here. Listen to a couple of them around here. <laughs> You're we're not. lucky they got here. <laughs> Jim, it's not that well, bad. No, well, I, you know, having been in the nursery business, I understand that, you know, particularly these last couple of weeks of April oh, yeah. and 1st of May Ooh. are the busiest weeks of the month. Yeah. And we haven't even started. Yes. <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I'm hearing that some suppliers are already out of things. Crazy. I was so distraught about hearing that, you know, geraniums are, are going to be difficult to get. Yeah, we went yeah. through a million of them already, but we did find some more. Oh, well, that's yeah. good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, we're good to go on geraniums yeah. for a little bit. Yeah. We'll see. I know geraniums are so beautiful, too. There's so many different colors now. Yeah. And uh, some of them you don't even think is a geranium. But we knew what was going to happen. It was, you know, so wet and so cool and sometimes even cold for so long until, you know, mid-April, all the way up to the frost day. Yeah. Even beyond, right? And people were just ready to get out and get some stuff done. I mean, they were ready, you know. You can't blame them. And then, you know, it's it's like the, you know, the frenzy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you yeah. turn around and everything's gone. <laughs> and then you're trying to find, you know, new product, um, which it, it's being done, but it's a little harder, it seems like it this year. It really is a little harder. Yeah. yeah, waiting for trucks to be available yeah. or just, um, it's just different yeah. this is different it's amazing you know what we go through to get your plants to the garden center mm. and then keep them watered mm-hmm. keep them spaced properly make them be in the right light mm-hmm. you know there's so, all these little things that you got to do to keep um the garden center clean because it's just like your yard yeah you can have and a so, plant but you know yeah. you better have a good looking plant if you want to get rid of that thing right <laughs> yes i mean no one's going to yeah. come in there and buy the, the well, ugliest plant that you have if we can't grow plants yeah then they can definitely think well if they can't do yeah. it i sure can't I'm do out it here, right <laughs> i'm like no don't look at that we ran over it with the wagon put it back on the shelf i'm sorry <laughs> but i i love spring though i mean even driving in this morning you know i noticed how much lighter it was this mm-hmm. morning than even it was you know a week ago um, so we got the long days, you yeah. know, ahead of us now. You know, of course, summer will be here before we know it. But uh, well, I'm glad we have four seasons, almost four seasons, because um, it's just I, I'm glad yeah, that we it, get it, to have such a difference in weather. Because I love the winter, but I'm really looking forward to the summer. Maybe yeah. not the heat, but you know, if you really think about it, there's only like maybe three weeks to a month normally that's kind of oppressive yeah but then the other times are all right but then we've had those where the summer the oppressive heat has lasted to the middle of october i'm not sure that two days of fall is considered a season (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's what i'm saying sorta (laughs) and two yeah sorta but you know how we are like i said a while ago we're you know we're chomping at the bit for spring right Mm -hmm. and we cannot wait to get out and, and start getting things done but then if you live down in, say, Orlando or somewhere where it's warm year-round, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people don't have that same sensation yeah. that we do, you know? Yeah, that's that, so true. That pent-up demand to yeah. get outside. But they want to grow roses, which they can't. I know, a lot of dogs. We want to grow palms, which we can't. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it's uh, it's it's that greener side of the fence thing. Yeah, it always mm-hmm. is. Yeah. I know. I'm thinking, why, do, why can't they grow roses? No, no dormant period. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And then why can't we go tropicals? Winter. Too, you know? too much of a dormant period. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but we try. I mean, we always try to grow things that, you know, that typically don't want to grow here. And mm-hmm. they're trying to grow things down there that typically don't want to grow down there. But that's part of the fun of it. Right. That, that really has <laughs> been my focus in my garden is try to push the the limits on mm-hmm. what you can grow here. Um, in fact, last year I planted some river orchids. They're native to the northwest, um, and you see them quite often growing on little piles of sand out in the river. Wow. Um, so we were not in the northwest. I planted, we got clay. Planted three <laughs> different varieties, you know, and they sat there all last year. And I thought, well, these are going to be dead in the spring. Right. Man, they're coming back gangbusters. Really? Yeah. So I'm real excited <clears throat> to see them bloom <clears throat> here uh, mm-hmm. sometime in the near future. Never even heard of that plant. It's, uh, it's, uh, ip, ip. Epi something or other. I, I, you know, it's got one of those names of lowered my arm. <laughs> so, well, Jim, you know, he's got his own little botanic garden. You walk I through do. his, yeah. his yard, yeah. you know, and psh. look at all. Well, so that just shows how long of patience we need to wait for something to come back. Which I have I done. Mean, normally, I probably would have dug it out mm-hmm. thinking I'm done with it. You know, it's not coming back. It's been a whole year. I would have helped but they to dig wait, it out. Yeah. And then you waited, and what a reward. Yes. You know, so I did that I could actually grow it here. So, and I thought I could, you know, just mm-hmm. by describing how it grows in nature. And I thought, you know, I think I can replicate that. Yeah. And so it's in a, there's a uh, 15 gallon container of soil that sits in my lily pond oh. so that about four inches of it is above water level. The rest of it's below water level. Wow. So it has constant water. Um, and it's, um, I was really surprised to see how vigorous it's coming back. But like you said, he rep, kind of, he, he more or less replicated where it naturally grows. That's right. And that's the key right there. Yeah. You know, and then we're always trying to replicate how things should grow around here. One is the amendment, even just the amendments of our soil mm-hmm. when we're getting ready to plant. Because there's not many things that grow in just solid, pure clay. Think about right. it. Oh, well, yeah, there are. They call them natives. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I should say attractive things, Jim. <laughs> uh, now attractive. you're really near in the list. Okay, so like uh, speaking of natives, I was reading a native book that I'd gotten years ago, and it's mentioning Carolina Jasmine is a native. That's pretty. Um, the cross vine is a native. Mm-hmm. I have no um, problem with Crossvine or yeah, Carolina Jasmine. Right, so those two are really neat. Um, and just for those who want to know, it's Carolina Jessamine. I, yeah. I, you know, I, yeah. I said last night, am I going to say Jessamine or Jasmine? Yeah. I'm just going to go with Jasmine. That's what I've said my whole life. So there's Carolina Jessamine. There's Crossvine <laughs> or Bignonia Vine. There you go. <laughs> Bignonia. I love that Lancy one. And it's a, I tell you what, that is a pretty neat semi-evergreen vine. It can grow you know, in a good bit of shade. Uh, yeah. You know, trumpet-shaped blooms, uh, almost like a trumpet vine, if you will. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's in the family. I've, I've seen yeah. I've seen it two different ways. I've seen it really thick on a wall that yeah. looks great, and then I've seen it just pieces. Str- yeah, struggling because <laughs> it's in the wrong spot yeah. and doesn't look so great. So there again, it all depends on you know where you're trying to grow mm-hmm. these things and how you're taking care of these things. Well, I planted, we had an arbor, it was like a t- normal 10 foot arbor and I planted four one gallons on each corner of the cross vine and it only took it two years to get up and over mm-hmm. and then the entire thing was orange, yeah. you know, when it bloomed. Mm-hmm. Then the rest of the year it's just nice shade, you know, under your arbor, it's a really nice shade. 
It has the burgundy foliage on it. It stays through the winter and then drops a lot. And, and puts it's not more heavy on. enough to bring your arbor down. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's a good thing. <laughs> Thinking of wisteria there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, of course, we know the Carolina jessamine. <laughs> as the yellow bloom and then you yeah. know the, the confederate jasmine we talked about this a couple weekends yeah. ago or weeks ago you know the the madison star uh, is one of the more winter hardy varieties of confederate jasmine and it has that real thick you know glossy green leaf beautiful mm-hmm. foliage uh and of course the the great white blooms uh that are on there uh so I mean, there's some there's some good looking vines out right. there. I promise you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've even had them where we trellised them like vertically, <laughs> right? That's vertical. That's, that's horizontal. No, that's horizontal. <laughs> I went through this all week. We plant them where they grow horizontal, and they'll go straight and then horizontal, then straight up and horizontal. But we're constantly oh, yeah. pruning to keep it in check. Uh, so. That way you can grow it on a zero lot line. Yeah, and then, and then everybody can make the mistake that I did, you know, 10 years ago when I was living, or 20 years ago now, uh, in my older house, you know, I wanted, I had a brick wall that I just wanted covered. It was just mm-hmm. bare brick wall. So I, of course, went out and got, you know, some Boston Ivy because I love the way Boston Ivy looks during mm-hmm. the growing season. I love the way it looks when it turns in the yeah. fall beautiful fall color but i tell you, you talk about pruning i pruned mm-hmm. every other day i mean it, it will flat out it would do what you want it to do mm-hmm. let me put it that way but to keep it maintained because I, I kept it kind of cropped off at the yes. top i wanted it just on the brick and not on the wood mm-hmm. because for everybody out there that's grown boston ivy <laughs> if you ever let it get on the wood and then you cut it and pull it off the wood. Yes. You got the little cement bumps, right. you know, that are left there. Then you got to come back and sand those down, come back and paint. Mm-hmm. And I, y'all, I'm telling you, I said I can do this, and I did, but it almost killed me. No, no. But I was no, out no. there every other day pruning this stuff. So if you want a fast growing vine that will take over a wall, I mean, immediately overnight mm-hmm. is what I mean. Get some Boston ivy, but just be aware right. you better you better be ready to do some pruning yeah, if we, you want to keep it maintained. That is so true. I had a, a client that had just got her facial board painted, and she had English ivy, and we kept it like that. And she calls me, "You got to hurry. <laughs> that piece is so close to the wood. Yeah, <clears throat> it's going to mess up my newly painted wood. Yeah, and and I went out there and sanded and repainted numerous times." Because it grows so fast. But but there again, I mean, that's a benefit to me. I like, you know, if I want something covered, I want yes. that vine to grow as fast as it possibly can, uh-huh. right? Yeah, typical. You know, most people say, I want it to grow to right here and then stop. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's not going to, Jim. No. Yeah. And then, you know, we talked about the Amethyst Falls Wisteria, which is mm-hmm. an American Wisteria, which is not quite as aggressive as these, you know, Asian varieties. Which now we're not listing natives, but... But beautiful, yeah. beautiful vine. And then, of course... Um, you know, the, the creeping Akibia. fig and the fig and the yeah. Akibia. I mean, they're all good-looking vines, they I'm are. telling you. We'll have to talk more about that and a few more natives. And, boy, do we have a lot to talk about. And we'd like to hear what you have to talk about. You're listening to KWAM Radio. Call us, 260-5926. Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Give us a call, 260-5926. Pick us up on Facebook Live. If we're going in and out right now, you can stream us online at kwamradio.com. Yeah, shoot me a text. Like you said, the Mighty 990 Facebook page. Guys, if you're making your rounds this morning, right, which we all should from time to time, uh, one thing you're going to notice potentially on your azaleas is azalea leaf gall. 
it seems like, um, you know, if not every year, almost every other year we see some of this. And, and if you're not familiar with it, uh, it looks like this this whitish, greenish glob is taken over the leaves of your azaleas, right? Uh, and if you read about it, it, it is a fungal gall because there's different types of galls. There's insect galls and mm-hmm. so forth, but this is actually a fungal gall. So if you go out there and the, the leaves look swollen and, and just mutated and... Looks like they suddenly became a Hoya. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, sure enough. Well, <laughs> sure enough. And, yeah. um, you know, typically speaking, azalea leaf gall is not too detrimental mm-hmm. uh, to your azaleas. I mean, it's not something you want. Um, so what I tell people is if you do have it, try to pick off as many of the gall as you possibly can. Uh, because if not, they're going to start drying up and, and spreading those spores everywhere, okay? Um, so try to pick off as many of the uh, the leaf gall as you can. And then you can come back in there and spray with, uh, you know, some Mancozeb or, or Dacanil is, would be my top two. Um, but just be aware, and if, you're not, if you've never seen it before, then, you know, read about Azalea leaf gall, G-A-L-L. Because with the wet cool spring that we had and that's what really brings it on well we've had a very wet cool spring up until now um so we're starting a lot of customers came in this week in particular with a zay leaf call in their hand and some of them had never seen it before and they're like what in the heck is this it's it's foreign looking alien looking alien and a a related uh, fungus attacks camellias and will give the camellias the kind of its same uh, appearance Mm -hmm. they look inflated Waxy, yeah. uh, cartilagely. Yeah. Cartli- looks like cartilage to me. Really onion, but you don't want them falling to the ground because it'll be next <laughs> time we get a suitable spring, it'll be tenfold on you. So. Yeah, but spraying, like I said, mancozeb or dacanil, one of those fungicides, and you know, just hopefully will knock it out. But and, and like I said, the good thing is, is this particular fungi is not really the death knell of your azaleas or your camellias. You don't want it. Don't get me wrong. So pick it off. uh, Get them as clean as you can. Rake any off if you see any on the ground, and then come back and spray the plant and the ground. But cool, wet springs, they bring on a lot of different things that we don't like. Yeah, see, all that is already on the plant, but the environment is perfect for it to go ahead and grow. So it's not like anything blew in or the neighbor planted something and it got on your plant or the gardener was in there and disturbed something and made it get a gall. No, it's it's all weather related. Yeah, right. So um, don't blame your landscaper on that one. And then another thing, if you're making your rounds this morning, uh, because of the weather there again, uh, we're starting to see a good bit of powdery mildew. And that's just a white mildew. Uh, especially if you have Manhattan euonymus, uh, even well, any euonymus, right? Yeah. But especially the green-leafed Manhattan euonymus. I've seen it on roses. I've seen it on quite a few different things. Uh, and the same thing. I mean, you want to get rid of this powdery mildew. And as soon as the weather stabilizes, we start getting warmer temperatures, more sunlight. You know, hopefully we won't see as much powdery mildew growth that's out there. But in the meantime, uh, of course, you can't go out there and feasibly pick off every leaf that's got powdery mildew. It's just unfeasible like it is with the azalea leaf gall. But get your uh, fungicide out. Uh, I like to use a systemic fungicide uh, for powdery mildew. But give it a good spray and come back in 10 days, two weeks. Make sure you come back and spray it again. And I always like to tell people, especially if you have a Manhattan euonymus, I hate picking on that plant, but it's just so susceptible to powdery mildew. 
that if you go out there and spray to kill the mildew, yeah, you're going to get rid of the mildew, right? But a lot of those leaves that are already infected, they're not going to look good. Mm-hmm. They're going to turn yellow and brown and fall off a lot of times. You're spraying to prevent further infestation, and you're also spraying to prevent mildew mm-hmm. from getting on the new growth that comes right. out. I've I've enjoyed enjoyed using neem on things like zinnias and phlox and more of the perennials that get the powdery mildew and it's really neat looking Maybe bee balm. You, yeah you put that neem on there mm-hmm. and it seems it seems like it makes the powdery mildew draw up into where you don't see it on the whole leaf but you just see little bits of it there and there but it's you know those are just smaller perennials that are basically herbaceous and the neem oil works very well on that type of uh, surface leaf i remember when neem had first been introduced and um we live, I was in Texas, Bryan College Station, Texas, so that was, they called it the crepe myrtle capital of the world. More so than Memphis, you Yeah, think? I know. I was surprised. Well, I knew when I came to Memphis that we weren't crepe myrtle capital of the world because I was very shocked at the pruning of the crepe myrtles. Crepe myrtle. Never gotcha. saw that before, really? ever, until I moved to Memphis, and I thought, what just happened? Yeah. So, you know, started figuring that out, but um, we had a bunch of crepe myrtles stocked together, <clears throat> and Spring was coming on, and we didn't get them separated quite in time. And one whole row had the powdery mildew on it. So we took the neem, which was probably stronger than the neem now. Well, they're coming like, out with neem this year that's going to have more of the azaractin oh, in it good, than, I think than just the, the that, neem yeah, oil itself. That's the bug killer. That's yeah. the yeah. good stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it wasn't at first. That's what it was, and then they changed it a little the name, because I swear I remember. Yeah, there was initially some azaractin in it because mm-hmm. it was a, it was considered a killer, um, instead of just like smothering like a mm-hmm. uh, like an oil, um, but they did take that out and it was, um, been available for commercial growers for a long time. Yeah, um, but. They just didn't put it in there. And when we it's s- just it, bizarre. Yeah, and when things, we say yeah, go ahead, Megan. Oh, it's it's bizarre how things work like that because when we sprayed the neem, it worked. It worked great on the crepe myrtles and all. So I've been convinced of neem ever since. Well, and I but love then when you heard the azaractin was well, but like Jim was saying, that's more for the insect side of it because mm-hmm. I mean the oil itself is still going to kill yeah. insects, but the neem it will coat the tissue. And it makes it really hard for something like mildew, for example, to get a foothold on that tissue to embed itself into the leaf itself. And that's why neem is not only deemed an insecticide, that's why it's also deemed a fungicide, because it will help prevent certain types of diseases, including powdery mildew. Without the azurectin, though, it's a different class of an insecticide because there's not, you know, or fungicide because it's not technically killing the fungi it's preventing right. it from getting in getting a foothold so right. it falls under different class and different regulations and uh, that you have to to do to get an epa approval on a label so it's a lot easier without the azaractin in it to get a label for mm-hmm. it yeah <laughs> and then and what constitutes crepe murder because you can go out there and you can do some light pruning and trimming on crepe myrtles so what? Not a problem. Yeah, like from the inside even out. Top them, or, even top yeah. some of them, you know, just like a snow cone. I mean, yeah, um, right. but, but when you go out there and, you, and you've got these huge trunks, because this crepe myrtle has been there for 20 years, mm-hmm. 
and they cut it down to six foot. Uh, To me, that is crepe murder, okay? Right. Uh, Anything that's cut straight off the top, half of it, a fourth of it. But we have pruned the smaller limbs at the top to make it into a snow cone shape. Yeah, so you're not saying you can't go out there and do some pruning on crepe murders. I mean, on crepe myrtles, <laughs> you know, it'd be deemed a crepe murderer, right? But if you go in there and just really cut these things way back, especially mm-hmm. the ones that have been there for years, and you get this huge stalk and these little flimsy little stems that come out of the top of it, not a good look to me. No. That's, uh, I don't, uh, that I can't understand why people do, to be honest with you. I know you don't have to prune down to make it fit in a location, really. We had a client that wanted to take her crepe myrtle down it was close to the house, but the way that it was growing, I'm looking at it thinking, I, this is very prunable, where I can still prune it, but get it off the house, and yeah. it's still going to look good. And then as it grow a little larger, you know, you had a nice canopy up over your house. And I don't, I don't know, has any crepe myrtles fell on a house before? And would it really? I've never heard of that. <laughs> so I'm thinking it'd be okay if it's growing over the top of the house. Yeah, too. but there again, I mean, the, the whole thing with crepe myrtles, because there's so many on the market now uh, and so many different colors. But my point is they come in so many different sizes that there's no excuse really not to have the crepe myrtle for that area, for mm-hmm. wherever you want to plant it. You don't want to plant a crepe myrtle on the corner of your house that wants to get 35 foot tall. All right, we'll be right back. Y'all stay right with us, 260-5926, and we'll let Jim talk. We'll be right back. Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. You can post your questions on our Facebook Live and you can give us a call or if you don't want to talk, just tell Claire what you want to talk about and she'll put it on the board and we'll talk about it. Yeah, and if you want to give us a call, guys, it's 260-5926. 260-5926. And like Veda said, the Mighty 990 Facebook page, you can shoot shoot us a text and then uh, kwmradio.com mm-hmm, so, to stream us. Yeah. And uh, you can listen to our podcast. And also you can um, get a lot of great information on Mid-South Gardening webpage. Jim's an administrator of that. And what's the, what's the, what is that, Jim, that you have going on? He's <laughs> doing that to him on purpose. I know. <laughs> you know I'm just not even going to talk to him this morning. <laughs> but I'm being just, that way. I want to brag about how good the webpage is. Yeah, Mid- you should. Yeah. The Facebook page. Mid-South <laughs> Gardening. Yeah. We made it easy for once. And I love looking on there and seeing mm-hmm. the uh, the pictures that people post and tons of questions that people ask. Mm-hmm. And and that's the beauty of it. I mean, you get really an- you get yeah. answers. Well, it just reminds me last night I was going to po- post Foliage Friday. Yep. Planned for it all week. Mm-hmm. Did you see my post? No. I did not. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, I want to do Foliage Friday Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> we have people do them late all the time. Yeah. Well, that works. And I know we've got David and somebody else oh, calling yeah. in. Okay, let's go ahead and go to David in California. Good morning. You're in the Mid-South Garden. Hello, David. Oh, we may have to wait a minute. She's got. She's on the other line. So hey, many people are calling in. Hey, okay, Dave. David, there Good you go. Good morning to you, buddy. You there? Hey. Yeah, hey. Yeah, I'm here. Are you hear me now? We yes. can hear you now, David. Good morning to you. Good deal. 
Uh, as you probably know, the Ukraine is a huge food production mm. uh, region of the world. Mm. I was looking on Wikipedia, and they said that 25% of the world's topsoil is in Ukraine. Wow. Did not and know if, that. Yeah, and then uh, I've heard different numbers. Uh, it's, people say uh, uh, one set of numbers said 12% of the world's food comes from Ukraine. And if they can't get in a crop this year... Yeah. You know, food prices are going to go ape in a bad way. You mean more than they already have. Sure, yeah. And, I mean, this is there right now, hypothetically, if the war stopped, uh, you know, this instant, mm-hmm. the, the farmers would be able to get back to normal. But uh, with the idea that we're going to have billions of dollars worth of weapons sent right. over there, yeah. it doesn't bode well. So, you know, local gardens is a real smart idea. And, uh, you know, so for the listeners, uh, if they're, yeah. you probably have some community gardens out there, right? We most definitely do, David. And I'm telling you, you brought up a good point because it seems like to me, I mean, in, you know, people have always done it. But in the last really five years, there are more not only community gardens here in, you know, in our region here, but there's so many more backyard gardens also. Right. Um, Yeah, we had uh, had a lot of kids coming in, and I'm asking them, um, just because I want to know where they're going in the future with gardening, and I said, why are you buying, you know, vegetable plants? And they said, because I'm going to grow my food. I'm worried about this. Right. Sure. Well, one last thing that's kind of tied to it, uh, you know, food stamps you're supposed to only use for buying food. Right. Now, in certain states, uh, you're allowed to buy vegetable plants, uh, you know, starter plants, yeah. uh, and you're also allowed to buy uh, vegetable seeds. Right. Uh, and so I'm just wondering, is Tennessee one of those states that allows, uh, you know, seeds to be bought with food stamps? Do you have any idea? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Because no. that could be a real important, you know, yeah. whether it's a campaign issue or... No, we use, a, we use food stamps here to buy steaks for our dogs because it <laughs> won't pay for dog food. So we buy T-bones and things like that. Uh, you know, I've seen them stacked up in carts five and six packages deep. And, you know, I just said, man, you eat a lot of steaks. And no, it's for the dogs. Because you can't you buy dogs. I was a gardener. Yeah. I was a gardener when I was a teenager. And this was during Gerald Ford, and the meat prices were pretty similar to mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when they, the, the guy that, uh, the, the estate that I was working at, it was huge. It was like 40 acres. And the, the teenage son came out just to show off, and he dropped. They had this old beat-up dog mm-hmm. uh, that could hardly get up. And this guy brings out four or five steaks and yeah. just piles them in the in the thing. The dog just looked at it like, you don't expect me. A tiger wouldn't eat that much. <laughs> and, and this guy, is, you know, it turned out that this guy we were working for had sold missile launchers yeah. to the uh, Russians. Yeah. He, he was like in prison, yeah. and, and his kid was out there showing off about how much he could waste. It, it just I, that's when I lost all respect for rich people. Oh, I hear you, uh, <laughs> Dave. Well, we're gonna thank you, Dave, for the, Calif- the California. Thanks for the call, Dave. Always and, um, it's good to hear from Dave. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. Our souls in Ukraine. But David <laughs> and Jerry, hang on one second. But Jerry, but David did make a good point though that you know things can happen. I mean, and things that happen over way over there, like in Ukraine 
can affect a lot of different people that live nowhere around there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've already got a food crunch going on. There's a food shortage, and prices have gone through the roof. And like David was talking about, I mean, this stuff could get worse before it gets well, any better. Well, all I got to say is these weeds are going to start looking better <clears throat> and better. Mm-hmm. That dandelion <laughs> greens are going to be delicious if you can't get anything in the grocery store. I'm right there with you. And who was the, the lady that went out to here? The lady that went to the lady's house that she grew weeds as um, in her landscape as her edible garden, her um, herb garden and all of that. So she, some friend came over, and that was their thing, walking through the garden and identifying the weeds and how what you eat, what you do with them, what vitamins they are. Yeah. So that can be another futuristic uh, gardening practice. But you really don't have to garden on that, do you? Yeah, but you just let that, it go. But that's going to be the. I'm going to hold out as long as I possibly before can. you, you yes. do the the weed. Yes. Um, gourmet. Retire weed. the lawnmower. Eat your lawn. Not oh, that's a good going one. To happen like that a billy is goat. a good one. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Retire your lawnmower. Eat your lawn. <laughs> I like it. Okay, uh, we've got time. Let's go to Jerry from South Haven. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, Jerry. I got, uh, I've got that rainbird uh, drip irrigation on my azaleas and some others. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any way that you can think of to rig up a fertilizing system that would go through the pipe yes get everything equally yes go to your garden center there's a little gadget called a siphon mixer Mm -hmm. okay it hooks between your irrigation system and your faucet it is calibrated at 1 to 16 so what you do is you get a five gallon bucket you mix up your fertilizer in that and then you drop the tube in it. Whenever your water comes on, it siphons that fertilizer out and delivers it equally to all your plants. Okay. It works great. I use it. Siphon mixer is under 20 bucks, I think. I I was going to say, that's that's old school days price. (laughs) Yeah, they're plastic now. They were brass when I was young. Yes, they were. (laughs) And I think Hypanex is one brand name that you can find. But, yeah, siphon mixer. Uh, Jerry, and just like Jim said, I mean it's it's a it's an easy way to to get that uh, water soluble plant food uh, through the irrigation system. Yes, sir. Y'all don't have anything like that, do you? I think we do. I mean, uh, Jerry, I'd have to put my hand on one. We carry them. I know we've had them. I, it's just something that a lot of people have never even heard of them. So I had I haven't put my hand on one. Right, I have one in stock. Yeah, right, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So yeah, but they're they, wonderful. I've used them in the garden mm-hmm. center. It's an easy way to fertilize our plants. But, but siphon mixer, Jerry, is the name of it. If I can find my way to Cooper and Central, that'd be a lot easier. Oh well, yeah. tell me hello when you come in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I love that rainbird. I mean, especially in the hot summertime. Oh yeah, just go out there, turn it on. Yes, take two hours there, two gallon per hour trip. The beauty of that, Jerry, also, is, you know, you're getting the water to where it belongs. It belongs on the mm. root system. You know, you don't have to ever have water on the foliage of your plants. And in fact, if a lot of people that constantly do that, you know, they're creating a fungal environment also. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And then you're looking for another really easy way to get not only your plants watered, but to get them fed. So I applaud you. Mm-hmm. That's for sure, because yeah, I use the Morganite and uh, Hollytone. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Uh, so well, I called you a few about the one azalea that hadn't 
it lost all its leaves yeah. over the winter. It's done bloomed out. Just beautiful. That's was it a different color one or it was all the same? It's just plain old red. I've had this thing for fifteen, sixteen years. It's maybe longer. It was and like just, I didn't like that winter maybe, at all. Maybe I just hadn't paid much attention to it mm. before, you know. No, that's a good point. That does happen. That does happen. Some one person it's amazing. Said, I've got a total of I don't know how many I've got, but uh, well, probably 20 as they were told. I got like five out of the whole bunch. Right. That they're a little stubborn. They don't <laughs> want to bloom with the rest of them. <laughs> oh, so you might have there's early bloom, mid bloom, and late bloom. Yeah, because not all azaleas so, bloom at the same yeah. time. That's true. I got early and the late. Well, Jerry, <laughs> yeah, try that. Uh, try the little siphon mixer, and I guarantee you're going to love it. Okay. I'll try to get up there and see beta then. All right, Take Jerry. Care. Thank you. Thank Thanks you, for buddy. Call. And Jim, you said sixteen to one. I think that's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so if you had a five-gallon bucket and you wanted to mix a tablespoon of, let's say, whatever, to a gallon of water, mm-hmm. would you put in sixteen? No, you tablespoons you, to a gallon of water, or uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if you're using a five-gallon bucket, then and wanted to do the whole thing, yeah, you'd do for be ninety tablespoons, right in the five-gallon. Okay, right. gotcha. Mm-hmm. And then how many tablespoons are in an ounce? Three. Three tablespoons. Let's keep Two. going. Yeah. Let's keep going. Two so tablespoons if we've got, <laughs> in an ounce. So that would be Two. how many tablespoons? Two <laughs> tablespoons in an ounce. It'd be 180 and, tablespoons in five yeah, gallons. That's, <laughs> that's High math. Why? So if I'm using natural, I'm like, oh, yeah, mm, just da-da-da, because I can't add. Well, but you're right. You can, I mean, whether it's, a like a fish emulsion or a seaweed or whether it's a, a synthetic water-soluble, you, you have to, you know, it has to be in water form to go through that siphon mm-hmm. mixer. But it doesn't matter. It could be either synthetic or organic. It makes no difference. It's a, I haven't used just plain fish emulsion lately, but I think it's thinner because I remember when we used it, it would stick in the screens of the sprayers. Yeah, it used to have uh, fish. Yeah, I was going to say, did it really, was it what it really was? <laughs> Catch a scale time? every now and then. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But now it's, uh, I, I, you know, they pureed it to get everything else out of it that they can mm-hmm. use. And uh, then what you get left is just, Nearly nothing. <laughs> I know. I'm wondering about that. Oh, but it's well, still, when they smush all that pulp stuff down, it turns look, into squeezing. In People are trying to eat breakfast. <laughs> going to analyze this smushing fish stuff. Okay. We're going to run off to another break and give us a call. We'd love to hear what you've got going on. Tell me how you smush your fish. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Uh, Oh, I was looking at something in Science Alert or Science Daily, and it was just giving you the ratios of, or showing me how big the world is and then how much water is in the world compared to how much big the earth is. Hold on. Yeah, so it showed here's the earth really big. Gotcha. And then it was almost like, okay, you'd have to know the scale actually, of how big the earth was. But the amount of water on the earth was so much less than anyone would think. So I had to cross-reference that, too. And I guess it's just uh, 
an illusion, I guess is the right word, because yeah, you wouldn't think it was just a little bit of water compared to... No, I mean, it's definitely more water than it is landmass. And they're showing well, that... Uh, no, because there's land under the water. Yeah, that was the thing. Yeah, that Visible. was the thing. Yeah, that's how it worked. Was True that, you They right. weren't going yeah. flat surface, they were going underwater and yeah. all, too. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. But if you look at all the fresh water that's available for drinking in lakes and mm-hmm. streams, you know, it's only about 1% or so of, of the water on the earth. So, so there's not as much as we think there is. Even this topsoil, we don't, we don't have huge, huge layers of topsoil on the entire world. It's all thin layers, you know, so of usable, good forest topsoil. Well, and you're right. That's the difference. I mean, up under topsoil is more soil, right? Mm-hmm. But Or rock. Yeah, well, mostly yeah. rock. But even, yeah. you know, out west soil. when they were, you know, when they were tilling these huge plots of land uh, that was just sun-baked, of course, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you, they're creating these, you know, these dust clouds. Well, there goes all of your topsoil, right? Just right off yeah. with the and, dust. And the, so the, but the soil up under there is not that good, nice, fertile mm-hmm. soil. Uh, even here, I mean, you know, clay is soil, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's not the best soil to just go out there and start planting in. Right. So that's why we get these other good soils and the men are clay soil. And like Jim is always saying, we're really doing it more for drainage issues more than anything. Right. But they're just because you've got, we all have soil, but that doesn't mean, surely mean you have good soil to, to work with. That's why there's all these amendments out there because we're growing and planting and growing and planting. Changing the environment by where we change our plants, move, get plants from here, move them to there, you know, introduce new plants to different areas. And that really changes the environment in a good way. And I thought I was going to fall on my face the first time I heard Jim say, you know, that clay soil is great soil. It is. (laughs) Exactly. Uh Uh, But he explained to me and, you know, it makes sense because I always wanted a very porous soil. Well, you know, not to the point where like, you know, Destin, Florida, mm-hmm. Sandy Loam. Arbor Town. Yeah, har- exactly. Arbor, yeah. But clay, the beauty of clay, and, 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 and Jim has always told me this, is it holds moisture. It holds fertilizers. I mean, it holds all the good mm-hmm. stuff. Now, the only thing, you know, detrimental about it potentially is it also, I mentioned water, is it doesn't drain mm-hmm. uh, the way we want it to. That's why we go in there and add those amendments to it to create better drainage. Right. But we're blessed, actually, to have this good clay mix in our soil we sure are because otherwise like you said things would be draining and draining um say for instance the gallardia that we try to grow here or grow here grows in the sand on the beach basically on these little dunes or up closer to the uh the coast but not straight out (laughs) on the sand on the beach but it grows there and we're trying to plant it in our clay soil and jim what were the plants that you said you put in a container uh that grows up in the northwest oh it's a river orchid and same thing i mean if jim had put those just in clay soil Mm -hmm. they'd they'd been dead three weeks later yeah it's it's heavy sand uh got some clay in it and just a a little bit of compost and and what do you Jim, what is your take on adding sand to our clay soil to amend the soil? If it makes you feel better, but it's not doing anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because, you know, in, you know I've, I've said this a thousand times, but it's the the particle size difference that what's, what's important. Um, you have to be at about 90% sand before the 
you don't have enough clay to block right. the water flowing through it. Ninety percent sand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but so and you did your river orchids in a container right. with sand because that's a whole different thing. That's right, and it, it's got a lot of sand in it, but it's it can um, the roots can reach the water table, and that's what's mm-hmm. critical for growing this type of plant. Well, and the reason I wanted to, you to say that is because. Well, anybody say it is because <laughs> he's waiting me for something. No, I know it's what I'm thinking. The, waiting for the hammer to no, fall. But a lot of people want to use sand as a soil amendment mm-hmm. in our clay soils, and that's okay to use it along with other things. But don't think you're going to amend that clay and create good drainage if you're using just sand by itself. And like unless you like Jim just said, unless you're using so much sand where ninety percent of your mix is now sand to 10% clay. You know, technically, when we're amending soil, we're not improving the drainage. We're actually decreasing the drainage. Um, You can improve the drainage by planting high because gravity then will pull the water out. But if you've got clay, water percolates through it at a slow rate. If you put air pockets in there, it still has to percolate through that clay, but it's holding water in that air. Mm-hmm. So you're actually decreasing your drainage. What you're in doing is improving the environment for the roots to develop. Um, and, and sand will do that to some extent, too, because roots follow the path of least resistance. Right. And there is that very tiny space between the clay particle and the uh, sand particle, and it will follow that. And the sand will always be in there. Right. It's not uh, going to break down. Right. And you know, when you put organic matter in there over a period of about three years, it's all going to go away. Um, but within that three-year period, though, you've had enough time to get that the roots. plant to right. get established, right. right. But you're not really helping the drainage. Uh, you're helping it retain some water, okay, and decreasing the drainage. But it's more about making air and available and uh, giving pathways for those roots to get out into the clay. Mm-hmm. And, that, and we do all of this, but we also plant high. Yeah. Like you said, mm-hmm. that's, oxygen. that's the key thing, because so many plants will not tolerate their roots being submerged, you know, and it, it depends on the plant. Dogwoods, not very long at all, a day and a half or so, and it's probably dead if it's totally saturated. Well, that's a good example. We had a house plant that was wilty, but the soil was wet, but I knew it uh, didn't get overwatered previously times. But I took the plant out of the plastic container and just set it next to it. Mm. No container, set it in a box. The next day I came back and the plant was all perfect. And it just had too much water at the time and I allowed it to air out some. Mm. And it came back out. So we'll be back for another hour. Get your coffee, tea, and be ready. We'll be right back. The garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990, powered by Palladio Home and Garden, with your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. Good morning, gardeners, and welcome to the second hour of Mid-South Gardening on KWAM 990. Give us a call, 260-5926. I'm Veda with Palladio Garden. Yes, she is, and I'm Kenneth Mabry with Dan West Garden Centers. And I'm Jim Crowder. Oracle of the South. When I'm in, inter- oh, when I'm I like telling that, Jim, yeah, when I'm telling people about our show, 
It's like I'm invaded with Palladio and Kenneth's up at Dan West. And then I go, Jim, and I circle my hands. It's from all <laughs> over. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we've all worked in the same industry. Well, it's all gardening. But, mm-hmm. like, at first we, we've all worked at garden centers. But then all of us has went off in different categories at times. And then different categories like irrigation or landscaping for me or water gardens. But... But so that gives us a whole bunch of different knowledge. Yeah, and Jim's been on the retail side, the wholesale yep. side, distribution, the distribution side. Yeah. side. I mean, good lordy! I tried to do distribution. I'm a heck of a time keeping a job. <laughs> no, it's just so retirement fun. though. Well, Jim, I've got they, down. you've done <laughs> such a good job. They grab you and they want you to come over to another place. You know, which is a I wish that were the truth. All right, <laughs> uh, you know, we were talking about you know making the rounds uh, in your garden, which I think people need to do more often to catch things that are going on. Yeah, you know, we mentioned the azalea leaf gall how it's out there now and then the powdery mildew you know because of the weather uh i had a lady and i you know you just had to feel for him pyracantha is a pretty neat plant uh you know you can grow it against a wall you can espalier it you can you can trim it out to where you know you got these different designs it's beautiful when it blooms and it's beautiful when you get those great berries on it in the fall so there are definitely some places for pyracantha. <laughs> but it seems like one of the insects that, one of them, that love pyracantha are mealybugs. Mm-hmm. This lady brought in a sample, guys, the other day. She had a little limlet, and she brought it in. She said, what is going on with this pyracantha? Because it is all over this thing. What is a limlet? <laughs> it was part of a, the, end, <laughs> the end of a limb. <laughs> you just made her choke. Oh, my goodness. Y'all, but it, this thing was coated with mealybugs. Uh, and she had never heard of a mealybug, never, of course, seen a mealybug before. And it was one of those things where I said, you know, you just need to get in there and you, you, you have to spray to control these mealybugs. And keep in mind that they are hard to get rid of. Um, so I was saying use a good systemic insecticide, come back in 10 days, two weeks, spray again. And then if need be, 10 days, two weeks, and spray a third time. But I said, but something's going on with this pyracantha. You know, for, to have this many mealybugs on it, it is weak for some reason, Right. Whether it doesn't have the proper drainage, it's not getting enough sun, uh, it just needs some good nutrients. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we want overall that also. So, there again, if you've got beautiful pyracanthas, uh, go out there and take a look at them because mealybugs are on the prowl. Mm-hmm. They, all yeah. they are lace bug magnets, too. They are lace bug magnets, too, Jim. Yeah. And that's where, you know, it affects the foliage, right. uh, kind of like Makes it does it. on azaleas. And, you know, and I love pyracanthas. It's just, you know, to be able to prune them, it's hard to do with welder's gloves. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which is really what you need to prune yeah. them, though. Because some of them have some vicious thorns yes. on them. I sure do. And then a lot, one of the things is we have grow paracantha in a small lot line. And so your air circulation mm-hmm. a lot of times is not there. So that even adds well, to issues. It does. But in this case, it, it didn't have really good drainage and it really wasn't getting enough sun. That's just uh, not no. A good spot. So this thing was already in such a weak state that it was just getting inundated by these insects. But you know, I just you know there are other things that she can put there, maybe potentially will put there. Mm-hmm. But she loves this pyracantha. So I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying. Do everything you can, other than just spraying to kill the insects. Try to figure out why do I have so many insects on this thing? Right, right. right. And you know, a lot of times. The plant is, of course, not in proper soil. 
or it's getting worse as time goes on because that can happen. That's why we keep adding organic matter to the top. But if you get in that position, you really don't want to dig out a pyracantha that's 10 to 12 feet tall or long. And um, so you can't dig it out, but you still need to amend the soil and quicker than what the compost on top can do. Right. So around mm. the root system, you can use an auger and drill some holes yeah and drop in that permatill that enlightened rock that soil perfecter. yeah drop that all down in the holes which allows the soil to expand into that uh where there's air pockets so, in the rock so you're improving the drainage yeah. without digging the plant right up. right and actually i learned that from the boxwood society because they were doing it with boxwoods they didn't want to dig up, but the drainage needed to be improved. But you still have to put the compost on top. So, but anyway, Jim, a limblet, is, I guess it's part of a mm-hmm. limb. <laughs> yeah, I, I was sitting there wondering, and then Jim and said something. And, uh, and none of that really improves your drainage, okay? The only way you can improve your drainage by adding something to the soil like that is to go through the entire clay layer to what's usually gravel at some depth down below. Maybe 10 feet down, right? It could be. You well, know, so the uh, Boxwood Society is wrong. <laughs> where your first house was. Okay, yeah. that was all gravel pit for 40 years. It was. And um, so, you know, at some point underneath that clay, you're going to run into gravel. Now, that will help you get through. But, no, if you just drill a hole in the ground and fill it full of rock, what's going to get in there? It's Soil. Water. But it's expanding off of the the main root ball if you do enough holes it doesn't the soil expand into the rock because now you've added air pockets no it, for it, this soil. it will flow back in and surround the mm-hmm. rock right okay. but you still have air pockets it's just helped it's helped it expand off of the but tight root ball how, okay but where does the water go that you're down imper- those little holes <laughs> I've done anyway. okay. So I learned it from the Boxwood Society, and apparently they don't know what they're doing. But <laughs> I've tried it, and it's what it's what you can do to really improve your soil is do the drilling holes, but put compost down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that too. Okay, and then first time you water, your clay then fills in around that compost, and that gives you a good place for your your feeder roots to get in there and it makes food more available because when you throw fertilizer on top of the ground it isn't getting to any roots down there not quick mm. either, of course yeah in our soil and many roots down there you know it's like you know if you're going to deep feet, feet root feed a tree why yeah mm. they're not there yeah, yeah. you know 99 percent of the feeder roots are at or in the top three to four inches of soil and then they're telling us to go down eight inches or so yeah. to get the and so, the, and so there's what, just not significant roots mm-hmm. down there yeah i mean i mean it all comes down to drainage i'm telling you i mean uh, we, you know we preach this all the time and there are some mm-hmm. things that were planted years ago like you're talking about the, you know the pyracantha uh, and it just didn't have the proper drainage. And so then, you know, what do you do? You don't want to go out there and dig up this, you know, six-year-old plant uh, and start over. Uh, but you don't want to dig up this six-year-old plant, mm-hmm. amend the soil, and stick it back in right. the ground. Because you usually kill it doing that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, doing those things like y'all are talking about will help improve the drainage. You and know, if you, if you compost. always compost... Uh, then a lot of times you're not going to have a drainage issue, especially if you put it in there right in the first time. But like Jim was saying, which is definitely true, your soil reverts back. If you don't ever do anything to it, it starts reverting back because it drinks, it eats all the compost and leaves all the other soil textures. 
So if you're constantly putting compost on top, then it's keeping the soil, you know, gets better as it goes lower. And even think about raised beds. You know, I always tell people, you know, that they're growing vegetables or whatever in. They start out with this bulk soil for their or, or bagged soil for their raised beds. But I always say there's three things that you need to do every year is add typically some compost, add some lime, and add some fertilizer, right? Well, why do you think you're adding compost to these raised beds every year? Because that compost mm-hmm. is being broken down and going away. Yeah. You That's know? why you see house plants or, con- or even any plants in a container that you leave in there for a while and your soil is at the top. The next thing you know, the soil is like a uh, fourth of the way down. And that's why. So the only thing you can do on that is pull that out and put soil underneath. But if you're constantly putting it on top, you don't end up with your soil level half of the, in half of the pot. So a good, rich, organic-based soil is full of these microbes, right? And yeah. these things are just munching away at all this stuff. Uh, so, I mean, that's a good, healthy, live soil. But that's why we're always having to go back and re-amend when mm-hmm. I say always, things like raised beds and vegetable gardens and so forth, we're always having to re-amend our soil because you can have that soil perfect today. Two years down the road, you've got a different type of soil out there. Yeah, your particles have dr- broken down to such small sizes that you're not getting air movement, you're not getting water movement through it. And that will decrease your drainage significantly because the closer those particles are together, the more water cohesion mm-hmm. you've got in there. So. Well, y'all are listening to KWAM Radio on 990. We're going to run to a break, so give us a call, 260-5926. Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Glad you can join us this morning because me and Jim love to fight. (laughs) <laughs> Give us a call, 260-5926, 260-5926. You can go to the Mighty 990 Facebook page and shoot us a text right there or kwamradio.com and listen to us live. And like you said earlier, Veda, if you miss it this morning, go back and listen to the podcast. Exactly. So um, we were still in the boxwood conversation. Well, it's all a bit about drainage. Could, yeah, you know? yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about drainage. All right. You have a clay. Let's say it's three feet deep and you drill a hole with an auger and fill it full of gravel what have you done you've created a hole that has gravel that's going to hold water exactly you're just going to sit here and rub it in like well, no wrong. i'm just i'm <laughs> no, just questioning uh, why the boxwood society would say something like that but it's also look, listen to this real quick I'm the analogy of say if you got a glass okay and you fill that water with glass you've got a glass full of water okay if you have a glass and you fill that glass with crushed ice or ice and you fill it with water, you still have a glass full of water. Okay? Now, you but don't have as water, much water. Yeah. But what if you had a glass full of, are you talking about crushed ice? Yeah, crushed ice. So yeah. what if you have a glass full of frozen ice? And is there another you pour type the, ice? Well, like, yeah, no, you're right, is there? <laughs> it's frozen, one piece, one big piece of frozen ice that can fit in your cup. And then you pour water in that. Then does it, it all melts. No, eventually. But, so that, you, but when you're pouring it in, doesn't it flow over? If you pour the same amount in a crushed ice cup... And then you pour the same amount well, in a solid ice. But this isn't solid, though, that you're putting down in the ground. You know? Right. It's not solid. Yeah. That's why I'm using the rock. Because wouldn't more water seep in between the ice? 
and not um, well, I guess bubble my point, over. No, well, bubble. my point, my whole thing was you still have the glass that holds the water, and I don't care what you put in there. Uh, you still have a glass that's holding water, right? Right, because it's a glass. Well, yeah, but, it, but, but your clay is okay. the same thing. Your clay is only going to have water percolating through it at a certain rate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you create a hole and put anything in there, what's going to happen is because the clay particles are so small, they're going to flow in that for either from the surface or from the side, and it's going to fill that up. If you go out and dig a one-by-one hole, come back in about five years, it'll fill itself up on its own. Right, yeah. Because okay? yeah. everything wants to become level again. Right. And well, that's what's going to happen inside mm-hmm. the hole. Well, I'm given temporary relief until the compost starts kicking in. So my, mine's not, I'm not going for long-term. In my mind, I'm going for temporary or for quick, quick help. But we still have to use the compost and um, on the top surface. And when you're putting compost down, it's going to go in between the rocks anyway. So mine's just short term. I mean, wouldn't, so what wouldn't would that you, help? What would you do? No, he would not drill a hole. What's the point? That's what I'm saying. I mean, what, what are we wanting to do? Well, there again, if you've got, and David, hang on just a second. If you have a an existing anything, vine, tree, shrub, whatever, and it's just not getting the drainage that it should get. Because it wasn't mm-hmm. prepped before you mm-hmm. planted it mm-hmm. two years ago, one year ago. And you really don't want to dig it up and start over. Is there any solution to what you, the problem mm-hmm. you already have? I've heard as far as digging, drainage. digging around the plant and making Pretty, a moat. Yeah, digging around the plant like in a uh, like you normally do when you dig a hole to put the plant in mm-hmm. it. So I'm still digging around it. Going to add compost with little clay. That's improving the drainage. Put it back in. And that should help with the drainage. That's the only thing I could think of besides the holes and the ground. But that that goes back Mm -hmm. to that's why it's so important to plant things the right way the first time. Right. Uh, Because you can't really fix without moving that plant. And that is either up or somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing other than bring in a, a, you know. A front end loader and just cut the dirt away from the whole yard and just leave it standing up there by itself. <laughs> so that's why I like digging my because I'm I'm digging the same hole as I would when I was planting it. So what would be the difference? Well, because I mean, we like we talked about in the first hour. If you're digging your hole like you were planting it, you're doing it typically just as deep as the root ball, but twice mm-hmm. as wide. And then you are adding those amendments, you know, those mm-hmm. compost type products to amend that clay. And then you're giving the the root system a chance to become established before that the clay just right. compacts again. So why mm-hmm. can't I do that around a plant that's there? Because already? none of that that you just did when you planted that is mm-hmm. improving drainage. It's decreasing drainage because now you have air spaces that can fill up oh, with water. Oh, so we need to plant what four or five that's inches m- tall. And that's put, why you plant yeah. high. That improves your drainage mm-hmm. by getting it up above your existing soil line. And so that's like one inch. Depends on the plant. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, most of the native plants here won't mind if you put them below ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're used yeah. to that. They they have evolved to take this uh, slow percolation rate of the clay. But, you know, if you try to plant a spruce out there, it's going to die. Yeah. Uh, So it has to be up where air can be in there. The one that I remember from college is the white pine. If it's submerged more than 17% of the time, the plant dies. Okay. And every plant has that maximum amount of time that water can totally submerge the root system. Before it compromises. Right. And that's accumulative during the course of a winter. Uh, So, you know, you can... 
you can have real issues with things like dogwoods by planting them flat on the ground and they'll leaf out and look just fine, you know, but they're going to over, if not the first year, over the next couple of years end up giving you grief because anything that you put in the soil has gone. It's mm-hmm. back to clay. So there's less air now than there was before. And see, so it, do you recommend, like if you're doing a new flower bed, to add compost into it every year? Okay. If you're building up, mm-hmm. then yes. Add, add compost when you're, de- when you're building it and then come back and top dress it. But, you know, if it's a perennial bed, you almost have to every three or four years lift some of the perennials mm-hmm. and and fix it if it's yeah. things that don't like our soil mm. you know? amazing. Yeah, i've had i've had to lift them before so um i'm just a compost fiend so now <laughs> if y'all have learned anything today something about hard frozen ice mm-hmm. in cups um <laughs> is good for your soil <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I said. (laughs) Twisted my words. (laughs) But that could be accurate. (laughs) Okay. Do we have time? Yes, let's go to David. Good morning, David. Thanks for the call. Hi. I I have a, I've had a problem with some uh, (coughs) fungus in my lawn. I have zoysia grass. Mm -hmm. Uh, A section started opening up a few years ago. I did not know what it was. And it's, it's spread out. It's killed the zoysia mm. or just just bare ground for probably oh two and a half, maybe three square yards overall. It's kind of patchy, so it's hard to estimate. However, yeah, I put some. I went to a Dan West Center out on sixty four out there, and the guy was very helpful. Yes, sir. and said that he recommended F stop. Yes, so I put some F stop down. I made a couple of applications of that according to the directions. Just a little hand spreader. Yeah. And uh, now I have weeds, a few weeds that have started coming back. One garden center told me that F-stop is systemic. I wasn't sure what that meant. She explained that I need to have grass down there. The roots will absorb the F-stop, and that will stop the fungus. Uh, Does that sound right, or am I explaining it right? Yeah, I mean, if you're right, if if, if you have a fungal outbreak in your zoysia lawn, uh, then of course you have to apply fungicide, and F-stop right. is a is a systemic fungicide. Uh, it's one okay. of the really good ones that that I love. There's uh, F-stop, uh, which is microbutanol, Jim, mm-hmm. and then there's Infuse. Uh, but either one of those are perfectly fine. But you're right, David. You put it down, uh, you water it in, you come back in about two weeks, and you reapply it because you typically want to apply it two times. But weeds are right. completely different. Anytime you start getting an area that the thatch or the, not the thatch, but the lawn itself is thin for whatever reason, the first thing that wants to come up in those areas mm-hmm. are weeds. Um, yeah. Well, but but you don't have to have grass there. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, it's under a pine tree, so I'll rake the pine needles off. I'm going to cut <laughs> some of the couple of limbs back. Right. Dropping pine needles. But the fact that I was seeing anything coming up was encouraging to me. Yes. And uh, so my question is, <clears throat> at this point, I thought I would take a hoe and uh, break it up a little bit and then get some zoysia sod right. rectangles and put down there. Right. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so I thought about doing that. When I talked to a, uh, a garden center before, the zoysia had, was still, it was not turning 
green yet. Yeah. But now my lawn is is greening up real well. Yeah. So would this be the time to put down some of the azorea squares? Yeah, as soon as they're available. I mean, uh, you know, they typically they they start becoming available around you know mid May. Um, yeah. But if you're getting uh, three or four hours of good sun out there, David, you can grow. Uh, zoysia. I mean, Palisade zoysia is a little more shade tolerant than just common zoysia, and it really needs three to four hours of sun, but you're right. Get out there, rough it up really good, lay that sod down as soon as it's available, and you should be fine. And then treat, you if you still got some of the f-stop, go ahead and treat that new sod also. Yeah. Okay, great. That was going to be my next question. Yes. So, Dave, you'll okay. be in good shape. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, buddy. You. And we're about almost about to go to break, so when we're finished with that, I'll tell you my opinion. Yeah, what would you do, Miss Bailey, if that was going on in your I yard? I don't know. Oh, I think we <laughs> you have don't time. Know? No, that's what I said. <laughs> I don't know if we have time. Yeah, my opinion is y'all. I don't know. Um, so, like, sometimes we go to a break before I can ever talk, so let's not forget. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll talk about that ice when we come back. All right. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Garden. Glad y'all are listening with us this morning. Give us a call, 260-5926. That's it. Yep. So I'm just adding, I actually don't have an argument on the brown patch or the take-all patch. Um, yes, F-stop, definitely, you yep. know, if, if you're having issues. Um, a lot of times when a patch of... of soil or a patch of grass just exposes the soil like why did it die out why did it get a fungus why did only this spot get a fungus and not that spot so you know in compost and organic products there's good fungus that can help counteract the bad fungus you know how the bad always wins so not we always have to add to yeah. <laughs> you have to add more um beneficial fungus and all to help combat what's bad plus you're even creating your drainage on your soil it helps some with uh, holding the weeds down for a minute and then if you put your compost out farther into the lawn that can help add the beneficial fungus to that and the microorganisms and all that to that area and then you have a real pretty green grass around that dead So would you go in there? And then it finally covers over. Yeah, would you go in there and let's say where David had a fungus in his zoysia, mm-hmm. um, take all patch, or like you're saying, uh, would you go in there and just rough that area up really good? Uh, and like you said, get a hoe or whatever, but just rough it up really good. Uh, apply the fungicide, of course. But would you put a layer of compost down in that area that's thin and barren? Well, I wouldn't even be doing the fungicide first. I would be working on healing the issue um, at first. And, you know, of course, it's your whole yard. Then you need to go get a big um, truck of compost and, and work. And it's not even a bad thing to do that every once in a while on your yard is add compost because, we don't treat our yard like our flower beds. A lot of times we just let it hang out, but we're not increasing the soil texture and all. I mean, my grass was so great and 
fluffy that the kids would play in my yard because the other yards weren't quite as fluffy. And it just came to adding a lot of compost, which allows the roots to get a little deeper, just a little bit deeper, and it allows food for the plant constantly, as long as you're adding your compost. And in that hole too, I would, um, in that patch of soil, I would also do like seaweed as well as the compost. And then I'm working on healing the soil because I, you know, that's just how I believe. So I'm going to do that first. And, but if you've got a whole bunch and you don't want to do that, then you do have to do the F stop. Yeah. And you know, our lawn is a living, breathing thing also, uh, you know, and there again, it still needs, you know, the right amount of sunlight Mm -hmm. to perform like it should, the right amount of drainage to perform like it should. Uh, It needs nutrient value. That's why we're feeding our Mm -hmm. lawns from time to time, whether it's synthetic or organic uh, products. I mean, so it's, it's, it's also a, it's living out there and it takes some tender loving cares from time to time. It's kind of like your, your human body. I found out I had hypoglycemia and they just sent me home and said, you know, we can take this and this for it. So I study on it. And all I had to do was quit with the sugar. Just bottom line. I don't have to take any pills. I don't have to rest when I don't well, I'm feel gonna good. Apply, I'm gonna just apply, quit sugar. I'm going to apply a high dose of sugar to my lawn because I'm going to get me yeah. a 50-pound bag of urea, mm-hmm. which is pure nitrogen of 4600. And, yeah. and Veda just throws books at me <laughs> when I say that. But it is a pure nitrogen product, and I'm going to put it out there on my lawn. And, a, you know, a bag of that would cover up to 10,000 square feet. But urea, well, which let's, is... Let's, let's back up just there a little bit. <laughs> now, it, now he's getting you, Kenneth. <laughs> well, you're talking as far as the coverage? Yeah. Well, like 46 into 1,000 is what? 4.6 pounds per 1,000 square feet. But it only needs one. Uh, but I can do as, as much as, what, 4.6? You can do ten if you want. Well, and you but can I mean, hear it grow. But if you got mm-hmm. your fertilizer, well, tin, and you have over fertilizing. Uh, but I wanted, right. to, I want to hear it and watch it grow. Uh-huh. But you're making it grow so much that you're going to be cutting off too much green tissue because you're not going to mow more than twice a week. Probably. No, uh, no, it's not going to be more than once a week. Okay, <laughs> and so you're actually going to start burning carbohydrates in the root system to replace that green tissue, and your grass is going to get much more unhealthy. Than if you'll apply one pound of nitrogen square feet, which means that bag will cover half an acre, which is about twenty something thousand square feet, right. twice that, twice that amount. So what but that's a good point, though, yeah. because you can try to do the right thing, putting a mm-hmm. fertilizer down, and you are doing the right thing. But if you overdo it, like in this case, pure nitrogen, forty-six percent nitrate, and yeah, initially you're going to get a bust of mm-hmm. just beautiful green growth. But it's growing so fast, like Jim said, if you're not out there every three days cutting just the tips off, you're cutting off a lot of that blade, more than you should be at one yeah. time. Well, the experience, I was talking about my lawn, how it was fluffy and nice, and the guy across the street did way more than you did. And he literally, I promise, because I saw it, had to buy another lawn more. He literally, because it just grew, it was beautiful, and it was getting taller, and it grew faster before they could get out there, so he got a lot more for his wife, and he cut, he was so proud, he cut, 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 and guess what was under it? Brown. Yeah. <laughs> it just started all over, and then, then the Stalins got sunburned a little bit, and then he comes over to me and goes, I want my yard to look like yours. Yeah. And But he didn't really go 100% organic. I just said, just go less fertilizer. And, all right, let me ask you this, though, because Jim, you did a formula. Uh, two or three weeks ago, mm-hmm. telling people 
how to formulate how much fertilizer you need to put on your lawn depending on the analysis, right? And that first number is always going to be your nitrogen. And that's really the most important one when it comes to feeding your lawn. It's not the only one, but it's mm-hmm. the most important one. But there again, Jim, let's say you take uh, urea, for example, again, mm-hmm. which is a 4600. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're taking that, what, 46 and dividing it by 100, no, correct? No, no, no. I'm taking the 46. What's the weight of the bag? Uh, 50 pounds. Okay, times 50. All right, so 46 times 50. Mm-hmm. Just say It's about 43. Almost right? 25,000, you know. Get, Get that the calculator. Because <laughs> yeah, we'll we're gardeners, sure. we're not mathematicians. Well, I used to be a mathematician, but then I had children, and my brain turned oatmeal. Um, okay, <laughs> still so blaming we, it on them. Yeah, I am blaming it on them. Yeah, I blame okay, it on them. Okay, so we got forty-six times right. fifty. Right. Uh, that equals twenty-three hundred. So we add a zero to the end. It right. covers twenty-three thousand square feet. Yeah, that's what I said the first time. Now, and, but what about the the formulation? If you're using the the math of dividing forty-six into a hundred, okay? Uh, Why? Because that's another. I mm-hmm. thought that was another I way you too. could do it. That you could figure out how many pounds yeah. to, to put down per thousand square feet. Okay, but. Almost all plants like a rate of about one pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. Gotcha. The frequency changes. Yeah. Because things like Bermuda is extremely high feeder. So right. you have to do that a lot. Roses, very high feeders. Yeah. Um, but if you, you know, with zoysia, it only needs about half as much nitrogen to mm-hmm. give you the same turf. Mm-hmm. With fescue, only about a fourth of that nitrogen to give you the same amount of turf. And again, timing when you put it down. Absolutely. Makes a difference. Well, see, that that goes into a, a really deep topic. Why? And I'm, it's marketing. Why did that label say 4.9 when you really only need one point whatever? So are they marketing to make you buy more? No, well, I mean, you'd have to see the label to be sure. But normally... If you check the rate on a box of fertilizer, it's going to be at the one pound rate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can choose to put more, you know, most a lot of plants will withstand that. Some will burn. But my, yeah. but my whole point I'm bringing this up is because you can try to do the right thing. But if you overdo right, uh, right. some of these fertilizers, you're actually being more detrimental yeah. than right. you are beneficial. You're going to make the grass weaker. It's mm-hmm. going to be more prone to diseases during the wintertime. Now, fescue... Is, is very, I mean, azoja is very prone to fungus where water runs through it during the wintertime. Yeah. You know, I, it, when I had, um, um, not Palisade, the one prior to that. Like El Toro. El Toro. Or, yeah. That's the one I was trying to think of. Yeah. I had to put down microbutanol every fall. Which or, is a fungicide. Right. And, or it would just have brown patches, mammy. Yeah. But now I've got mostly Palisade and, and Royal, and they don't have seem to have that problem. See, that was the whole thing. I remember El Toro, but then all of all of us quit because after a little bit, it it had problems here, mm-hmm. and it was tested and sold and and all this, and it was going to work here, but everybody lost their lawns basically. When you know when you're talking about growing turf, you know, like the, the experts like a Mississippi State or or out at the Agri Center where they're growing turf under ideal conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or um, the growers, the turf farms, they know exactly how much fertilizer they're mowing on a particular rate, you know, but even they have to like you say sometimes it ain't cutting right mm-hmm. yet and that's mm-hmm. all due to soil moisture and temperature mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But 
It isn't like a home lawn. Okay? Yeah, right. You know, it's home lawns are different. They're not yeah. that ideal condition. And we see that so much with with shrubs. You see all this advertising, you know, this is a proven winter shrub yeah. does so well. But, you know, that ain't the real world. Those test gardens are not. Yeah. You know? They're average, but we're not average. We're not average, you yeah. know. We we most of us do as little as we can to get that plant established. True. true. Yeah. And, and and the same goes not only to, to fertilizers, guys. Don't over you know, if it says one bag covers five thousand square feet, that doesn't mean you need to put that bag on a thousand square feet, okay? Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes with even insecticides and fungicides, if it says a tablespoon to a gallon of water, that doesn't mean that three tablespoons is better. Right. And we always, always, always hear people doing that on weed killers for some reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, they if it says four ounces to a gallon, well, let's put in 10 ounces because right. I want to kill it quicker, right? Now, wouldn't that, that's where it comes into where people used to blame farmers for doing all the poisoning to the water table or to whatever. Well, farmers have to follow the rules properly because they're checked. They're but checked. homeowners are and the it's ones cost that's causing the problems. There. You know, yeah. when you're talking about a farmer who's treating 500 acres, an extra ounce a gallon of something that's costing you 500 bucks a gallon yeah. Yeah. adds up pretty quick. Right, so you're making sure you're accurate. Not that's to true. mention you get checked yeah. for what you're doing, too. But uh, homeowners have, have no nothing to monitor them so and we're not getting on all, we're not getting on all homeowners I'm don't get me wrong homeowners. well i men men <laughs> yes says the apartment right. lady over here i know you're gonna make them think i know nothing because i live in an apartment but i've lived on land my whole life yeah. but i got tired <laughs> of cleaning house <laughs> we'll be right back after these messages 260-5926 <laughs> Welcome back, gardeners. Give us a call, 260-5926, or plant questions, not plant, post questions on Facebook Live. Kenneth will read those for us. Yes, I will. And um, let's go to Jamie, the Master Gardener. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for the call. Good morning. Hey, Jamie, good morning to you. I'm telling you, y'all must be watching me. I don't know how it is. If a little bit's good, a whole lot's got to be better. Because <laughs> it's men. Man, I'm telling you, that's that's my been my philosophy all my life. It seems like, but anyway, if a little bit's good, then that's that's boy. Exactly, Jamie. And I'm telling you, and the reason we bring it up is because I mean, a lot of people's mindset is just that, uh, you know, insecticides, fungicides, herbicides, fertilizers. You know, they've done, they've run tests on all these things. You can even have too much organic yeah. down. You really can. You and, can. Um, you start yeah. getting over 8% organic matter, and then plants don't yeah. like that. Yeah, so it's uh, it's just, you know, we like to bring this up, Jamie, this time of year, because everybody's guilty. You know, if they, like you're just saying, <laughs> if they if it says a tablespoon, well, I'm going to put three. You, you know, know? We, we had we have somebody this week, right, that they were trying to kill some particular weed, and they had cut the top off of it and treated it with three times the rate of Roundup, oh. and it keeps coming back. Well, first, <laughs> you don't cut the top off. No, it can't no. take it in. Yeah. And second... You know, how much deader can it be? (laughs) (laughs) Dead is dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but sometimes, Jamie, back in the past, before I knew better, it made me feel better. You know, if Mm -hmm. I knew, you know, (laughs) if I was putting in more than I should. Because how can that little bit work? Yeah. You know, that's what you think. 
Well, what have been going on, Jamie? I'm so glad to hear everything went well with you. Well, it really did, and, and we're, we're fortunate. We've been blessed. But anyway, I had another question, too, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that's bringing uh, stuff out from the garage or whatever, letting now that uh, Good Friday's passed. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering what uh, – I've got a tropical plant. You all well know about that coral plant. And, uh, Kenneth, I bought some stuff from you to put on it. Yes. Sir. Uh, fertilize. What kind of fertilizer should I use on that? Well, that's a great question. In fact, I even made a note last night about feeding uh, tropicals you know, that people take inside, including hibiscus and other tropicals. Most of your, and it doesn't make any sense to me, Jamie, but most of your tropical plant foods are going to be a fairly low uh, phosphate fertilizer, like a 17-7-10, okay? Uh, In fact, Fertilone came out with a fertilizer this year called Hibiscus and Tropical Plant Food. I mean, it's just, but now, but having said that, anything that's non-burning, you know, an Osmocote-type product, uh, you know, start and grow, uh, even uh, the water solubles. But, but Jamie, I'm telling you, for a lot of these hibiscus, and I have to ask Jim why later on, why do we need a low phosphate number for tropicals when we're always trying to encourage them to bloom? But something like a 17710, Jamie, or some Osmocote, something similar to that, you'll be fine. And I'm going to put worm castings on the top of mine and then water the soil with tiger bloom. Or a big bloom. Okay. Yeah. So, so any of those yeah. are fine is what we're saying. Just don't overdo it, Jamie. Okay. Thank you <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Care, Thank you. Weren't you going to – Well, my point, Jim, though, you know, I was looking at Jim because, you know, I mean, well, usually when I try to get something to bloom, I'm adding a high phosphate mm-hmm. to it, okay? That, the yeah. middle number, that high phosphate number. But I've always seen and heard and even, you know, now read about this fertilome – Tropical plant food is a seventeen seven ten. It's low in phosphate. Yeah. Well, there are two reasons for that. Um, One is phosphorus toxicity in a container primarily. The other is because phosphorus doesn't bind well to stuff Mm. other than clay. So in our clay Mm. soil, quite often we see people who have their soil professionally tested, it's at or above mm-hmm. where I've, it should be. I've yeah. never seen a soil test that's run here in Shelby County where the phosphate mm-hmm. levels are not off the chart. Right. And those are yep. coming from Same. the, from the right. outside mm-hmm. in the yard. But when you get into areas where tropicals are really grown, like Florida, okay, California, where there's some significant sandy soil, yeah. phosphorus goes right through that. And, you know, there's this thing about phosphorus going down the Mississippi River and turning everything green out in the in the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico right. and they blame that on phosphorus. Right. So it's a cover my butt kind of thing by the manufacturer right. and also to prevent you getting phosphorus toxicity in a container. Yeah. So, you know, cuz it it will it it does ugly things to plants. So th- that's <laughs> why you have a low phosphate number right. in something like in hibiscus food where Hibiscus bloom every day, more or less, right? Yeah. Um, so for those reasons, now what if you had a hardy hibiscus in the ground, you know, that blooms mm-hmm. a lot in the summertime? You know, you, of course you could use that same analysis around it because there again, typically speaking, our clay soils are already high mm-hmm. in phosphate, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And they don't mind our soils as bad, as bad. You don't have to do huge, huge soil prep. That was something in Central Texas. Our soil was just a little bit worse there, but the um, na- the native hibiscus, yeah, hardy hibiscus, yeah. 
um, performed great there. That's the first time I'd ever seen it. All right, so to clarify, though, and, and to answer Jamie's question, as far as the plants that he's bringing out, uh, whether you're using a granulated fertilizer, I always like to use non-burning, mm-hmm. or whether you're using a water-soluble plant food, it really doesn't matter. The only difference is with a water-soluble plant food, you're typically having to use it more often. The beauty of a water-soluble is it works really fast. Mm-hmm. The drawback is it doesn't last that long. So right. about every two weeks, you can use a water-soluble plant food, one that you mix with water and pour, where a lot of these granulated fertilizers, non-burning granulated fertilizers, are much more longer-lasting. But it doesn't matter which way you go, though. You know? Yeah. I like the compost just to make the soil better over time. And then, like of you said, adding earthworm on, castings yeah. to the top of that. And it does depend on the soil you start with. And say, for instance, growers, they grow in different types of soil. So when I have plants on the shelf, when mm-hmm. I get them from this grower, we have to water um, twice. But when I get them from the other grower, we just have to water them once because their soil's a little more moist and compost, where this other one is uh, more drain, more peaty. So... It's so hard to teach people how to water because it's like if this vendor, then you only water it once. But this vendor, you water it twice. And then they come back and go, which vendor? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it all depends on the soil that this stuff is is, is in. It used to not be that different. It used to almost be the same across the board, the soil And I'm almost to the point where, you know, I love tropicals for, for their blooms. And that's why we buy them, because they bloom so much. And it, to me, it's almost like, you know, when you bring a hibiscus in in the fall, right before winter, and you take it back out in the spring, it can be done. People do it because a lot of people don't want to just watch these or let these these tropicals die. But it takes longer, it seems like, after you bring them back out in the spring for them to really get going and start blooming again. So I always like to just treat them yeah. as an annual. Patience is not a virtue in gardening. But if it is, you get more reward. We'll be right back. The garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990, powered by Palladio Home and Garden, with your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. If you want to change the subject of what we're talking about, you just give us a call. And <laughs> that's 260-5926. Okay. Remember the snails I was talking about with all their teeth? Okay. Yeah, yeah. and I, I said how we got into that, that I it was twenty six thousand. I I really don't see how that could happen, but I got this off a college site. But like Jim said, the one maybe not be so accurate. So I started looking up in etymology and insects and and all these. Oh, Smithsonian, mm-hmm. and they <laughs> say snails have three thousand to six thousand teeth. Not 26,000. All we know is they have enough teeth to, to chew a hole in our beautiful hosta, you know? Now, a lot of people ask why the slug has the trails, the slug trails. And it actually comes out of one of the feet, they said. There's foot, they say. And it may, creates a slime that you can slide on. So that's how they make it across. And then I was reading where the um whoever comes up and invents stuff that they're trying to make a synthetic 
same thing as what the slug yeah. is. But it's I'm trying like, to find what they were going to use it for. I well, don't see, if remember. it came out of your shoes, you could just glide along the sidewalk. Right, right. Maybe that's what they're... <laughs> Maybe that's what they say. I, I'm going to have to look. And the poor person behind you. Uh, oh, wait, wait. Here it up. is. Um, repairing. Oh, okay. With hope that it might lead to. Okay. It's also important. Interesting. The medical community is now investigating the adhesive and the elastic property of this slime with the hope that it might lead to a synthetic glue that's capable of repairing tissue damage. All I know is. We've seen a lot of slug activity already this year with all the moisture we had. It seems like the wetter the spring, the more slugs we see. And for anybody and everybody, and they'll get on anything, but especially hostas. And that's why I just hate slugs so much because you go out there, you got these beautiful hostas, and it's always the most expensive hosta, you know, mm-hmm. that these slugs are just eating these holes in your, in your leaves. So, you know, thank goodness there are some slug baits that are extremely safe to use. That's got the, what, iron phosphide in it, uh, Slugetta, Sluggo, mm-hmm. those type of products that you can sprinkle out there. You could just pull its teeth out. And, and, <laughs> and kill those slugs, y'all, without harming me, you, the, the mm-hmm. birds, the dogs, and the cats. But, yeah, I, I have no, uh, no reason why anybody would want to slug around them or snail. Well, when I saw it close up, it was quite cute. But still, Mm-mm. I don't want them eating my expensive hostas. And like I said, and Miss, uh, th- there's a customer that used to always come in and she'd buy hostas every year. And even the voles, you know, she, mm-hmm. it always seems like the voles always go to the most expensive hostas that you have. You've got a $10 hosta and you've got a $30 hosta. Mm-hmm. Well, they're eating that $30 hosta up. Maybe the root system will taste better than the $10 hosta, right? Yeah. But it just seems like they're always right. getting the most expensive ones for some reason. So you can plant a water garden that creates a lot of frogs that eat slugs. Yeah. Just yeah. create your, your balance. my turtles do. Yeah, that's right. I mm-hmm. saw a picture of your turtle. You were holding your little cute turtle. Oh, one little baby one? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like I said, you can go out there and sprinkle that slug bait and be in perfectly fine shape, even if you have uh, children and dogs and cats and pets. And if you'll go to our... Facebook group, go to files. There's a section there. There is a um, article on hosta that will give you uh, slug resistant varieties, uh, sun tolerant, mm-hmm. uh, the whether or not it's fragrant. Uh, so anyway, just uh, you know, and it's got a couple hundred varieties on there for you to choose from. That is unbelievable, and it's in that file section, which I think is yep. wonderful. Uh, and yeah. and even the idea, I think, you know, of growing some uh, sun. Uh, some of the sun-tolerant hostas, that doesn't mean that hostas want to be in full sun by any means. It just means that there are hostas that can tolerate a lot more sun a li- than some a longer, of the other varieties yeah, can. Just a longer amount. You know, like if your hosta would only make it four hours in the sun, then this kind of expands it to six, out, six hours, you know. I brought in midday sun, wouldn't that still fry them and, here? And, and, the thing, and I mentioned the voles, the V-O-L-E-S. I mean, they love just gnawing the roots right off of them. And they're, they're caviar to a vole, just like they are to a slug <laughs> or a snail. And if you want to try to avoid that, then everybody tries to sink these hostas down in the ground, either in like a mesh basket or a wire basket of some type, to where you're physically protecting the root system. You're mm-hmm. keeping that vole from getting to the, the root system. And I'm telling you, it's not a bad idea to do that because they love hostas just as much as the slugs and snails do. So, you know, we have been 
taught to put them in the ground and then leave the bucket up. I mean, not the bucket, the lid of the Mm. bucket, like an inch or two above the soil. They cut the bottom of the bucket out. Yeah. So do the voles jump over the top and no. try to they're see? Stupid. They that's won't go what over I'm it. thinking. Well, they okay. don't like to come out in the open. You know, their mm-hmm. biggest predator are owls and and cats. Which basically. I heard an owl in my backyard the other night. By yeah. the way, yeah, um, that was me. So th- they're very very <laughs> leery. Most people have voles and never know it because they never mm-hmm. see them. Uh, you know, if you've got pine needles, you got them up underneath there, you know, and yeah. you'll never know it. You'll never know it till you plant some hostas right. out If there. you've <laughs> got mole runs, you'll have voles. They'll be in there, you know. I'm lucky. I have the neighbor's three cats. Yeah. And they do an excellent job of keeping the voles down in my yard. Um, so it's, they'll, you know, like you say, they'll pick out your most expensive hosta and go right down It just down seems the like it's that way. And if you do have that problem, guys... Uh, you know, there is uh, Mole Max, M-O-L-E-M-A-X, which is a granulated castor oil that you can sprinkle in the beds that helps repel moles and voles. Uh, there's a uh, Mole Go, which is a liquid version of that same product that you just hook to your hose and spray out there. And it's just castor oil is all it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, people would get mouse traps and bait it with a piece of a pecan and set that baited trap, okay, mm-hmm. beside one of the little round quarter-sized holes, which is a vole hole. And then they'll get like a clay pot and cover the trap. And you can snap quite a few of them that way, which Mm is, I was telling a young lady the other day about that. She said, Kenny, which way do you like? I said, I like any way that kills the dang things. You know, if you repel them, you're just moving them. They can always come back. Uh, And then there's the ramic rat bait. It looks like a little green ball, almost the size of a grape. And you can drop these ramic rat bait balls down in every hole that you see, uh, and feed them. You know, when I say feed them, is let them eat that yeah. that uh, that bait, and hopefully get rid of voles that way. So whether you're trying to bait them, whether you're trying to repel them, or whether you're trying to trap them, or whether you're sinking your your plants down in in mesh or wire baskets in the ground, do anything and everything you can to protect them because voles are they can be really destructive when it comes down to it. They can. We planted some cast iron plants one time and we came back to the yard and I one so cast iron right. were they? well i said oh my goodness i thought i taught him to plant better than that oh, those yeah. are planted too deep so i go over there and snatch it out of the ground and a vole had pulled it all the way down <laughs> yeah and so i was like well well i, I, I was walking fault. through a rose bed one day and mm-hmm. one of the little rose throw up you know uh, limbs that had the you know, limblet. Yeah, the limblet got stuck on my on my shirt as I was just walking by it, and it pulled the whole thing <laughs> out of the ground because it had no roots on it whatsoever. It's not just <laughs> hostas and tender plants that they will gnaw the roots off of. It it can be roses, camellias, <laughs> any yeah. almost anything out there. They can eat the roots off of it, and that's why to me they're so much more destructive. Than even a mole. I don't like moles either, but a mole is not eating the roots off of my plants. They're just digging up my yard. So, and for people that have voles and had voles, I'm telling you, try to bait them, repel them, or get the old mouse trap out and use the pecans. But seriously, why do they go for the expensive ones? Maybe the hybrids are hybrided. No, <laughs> you hybrid them or no? It just seems like it's always to be that way. Sweeter. I think a lot of times it's the ones that you have put in in the last year or so. Uh, the soil's looser. Yeah, they mm. can tunnel around it uh, easier. 
So I'm not always sure that they're picking the hosta. Now, I'm sure yeah. some of them may be flavored different, you know. I right. mean, obviously, the slugs don't like the blue hostas very well. Yeah. Um, so there may be some texture difference or something that, that makes them do that. Yeah, but. slug teeth are very, very small. <laughs> I'm just enamored. Oh, and then I saw this close-up picture of close-up magnified picture of them and it was actually a nice looking texture (laughs) (laughs) i don't like them oh well let's go you're learning a lot about the people on this program too as much as (laughs) when we get back you know we'll we'll um jim will talk about how he will start a conversation okay Uh we're gonna start a conversation about robin hill yeah and then uh there's some other uh plants i'd written down last night that are plants that you just need to take a look at we'll get into those also i'm going to talk about the heat yeah i know we're not there but i need you to uh start doing something now about it Uh we'll be right back Good morning and welcome back, gardeners. Glad you can be with us this morning. I'll go over the heat thing really quick because y'all's are going to be longer topics probably. So you know we got the heat coming up before too long, right, right Miss Beta? Yes. There's one thing I didn't realize about the humidity because they figured this out by an algorithm that incorporates factors like cloud cover, the angles of sun, wind speed, and humidity. But the thing is, it gets complicated because the wetter the air, the less efficiency we sweat. Less, Yeah, uh, which is why the humidity is so oppressive. And then I was also reading how bad heat can not only make you feel bad, but it really messes with other things, even your brain. I can guarantee that because I've worked out in some hot. And also it is the temperatures taken in the shade. So if it's, um, I mean, have you ever had people go, oh, the weather's so nice, but they're sitting in the shade. So they're at 78, but we're at 88 mm. in the full sun. I think it actually, I think it's a six degree. They said uh, could be more than that. But I'm, yeah, more than that. So th- really, and nobody drinks enough water, almost no one. So you need to start now <laughs> it's getting full up on water to stay hydrated you can't just drink a lot of water the day before yeah enough for people you know during the summer months drinking uh some pickle juice they say yes. that really helps with hydration even yeah. coconut uh, water yeah uh really helps with hydration a lot of the landscapers that i've talked to that are um outside the whole time or mm-hmm. all day long in the heat in the heat yeah. uh, you know they know they got to stay hydrated and water of course is the best thing but you just uh, get tired of it. Yeah, sometimes. but but the the coconut water uh, mm-hmm. and then some pickle juice from time to time that that really also helps. Uh, but it's important to stay hydrated. There's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things. I had a uh, texter, um, John, texted in. Um, John Hager. He said I tried some of the Volbait. Uh, that the wrapping on the packet said it was the flavor of peanuts. Okay. Unfortunately, every time I drop the uh, peanut bait into the vole hole. The armadillos came along and destroyed the yard by digging up the peanut <laughs> smell. <laughs> so he was out there oh. trying to do the right thing. He had a peanut smelled based bait that he was trying to kill the voles with. And here come Mr. Armadillo yeah. you know, digging it up and eating it himself. So, so do they, t- you know, how does it, 
smell like peanut butter? Do they know? How do they know voles like peanut butter? I mean, I'm thinking they have this cage and put these voles in there and then they put castor oil, peanuts, you know, all these little things that we use. So the vole runs to the one it likes the best. Mm. <laughs> or th- do we just come up with a bunch of things that may work? And I think the ramic, the one I was talking about, that the little green balls, mm-hmm. um, about the size of a grape. And the reason they make them round uh, like that, or like the size of a, a marble, let's put it that way, is they actually roll down the hole. But I think they actually have, is it, Jim, is it a fish-based smell to it, maybe? Uh, Seems like I may have I read that. I think it that. is. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I'm like, I'm with John. You know, you start putting peanut-based or, you know, a, a scent of a peanut uh, that's in a bait that you're trying to use to kill voles. Well, here comes Mr. Armadillo yeah. digging everything up, you know. I think if I heard that, I would just take globs of peanut butter because, you know, you, you know what it's like to have a bunch of peanut butter in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, Jim, and, and I'm going to talk about some plants that are uh, that people need to look at um at some point, but you were you're talking about how there's different ways to to bring to strike up a conversation. Well, anyway, yeah, I, I posted some pictures this week <laughs> of my favorite azalea, one of my favorite azaleas, conversation piece. Uh. Uh, it's a Robin Hill hybrid. Uh, the Robin Hills were developed by um, a guy named um, Harkle, and he um, he was an engineer or in chemist by trade, but he started doing hybridizing, and he never really had a nursery, but he got heavily into hybridizing azaleas because all the azaleas they had up where he was in, in the north were were carooms, you know, small blooms. Small and, leaves. Yep, and he wanted to cross those with the southern indicas to get small plants, large flowers. Yeah. And he, so did, the, he did some 18,000 crosses. Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh he he named his wife named their home Robin Hill, so that's where they got they get the name from. Uh and he's responsible yeah. for a whole lot of azaleas. Uh Sir Robert, Congo, I remember all those. Gwenda, yep. uh Gilly, uh Dorothy Hayes, Dorothy uh, Dorothy Hayden, Dorothy Rees. All of these are hybrids that he developed. I did not know. Yeah. Um but conversation piece to me is just unique because uh if if you look at the pictures in our Facebook group, it produces one that has white edges with pink in the center and then it'll produce a solid total rosy pink flower on the same shrub on the same shrub and then i've got one where the bloom is exactly half and half split right down the center so and it will vary like that and they i've always felt that something in the weather made them do this because Mm -hmm. when i planted them in front of my house they would have multicolors all over it but now 20 years later one side is almost totally orange the other side is almost totally white and pink variegated unbelievable so it's, uh, and I think it has to do with the shade and the sun and so forth. And and finally, in the last, when I was doing some research into this uh, several weeks ago, uh, I, I read an article where he was very distraught because he had a, an azalea that he was working with that was, I think, red, but it kept having a white center, and he was trying to get rid of the white center. And one year, they bloomed out totally 
one he had bloomed out totally perfectly red. He was so excited about it. The next year it had the white center again. <laughs> so, you know, it they, these are, are, are very unstable because of the Satsuki um, genetics in it. He used a lot of azaleas from, there was a guy up north uh, that owned Tingle Nursery, and he, he developed a lot of plants himself. But he supplied uh, Robert with all of these different uh, azaleas to use for, for genetics. And he provided him a lot of satsukis. And satsuki means fifth month. That's what yeah. it translates. It's a, they're May bloomers, and most of them will throw some flowers in the fall. Um, but anyway. So they're blooming he, a little later than the typical azaleas yes. that we see. So right. anyway, he, he's, uh, in fact, in one quote it says that he felt like naming the azalea was harder than actually developing the, the cross. <laughs> you know, And he had named this one azalea Effie Bunce. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it was named after a character in a book who, as they say, was from the other side of the track. And that one I never heard of. She had lots and lots of children and had some difficulty remembering which child went with which father. So um, <laughs> in, in talking to Mr. Tingle, Tingle said, you, you can't name this Isaiah, it's gorgeous, after somebody like that. Yeah. So it ended up, they changed the name to Conversation Piece. You've got to be yeah. kidding so me. So it's a really interesting story, and I, I knew that story. I had to go back and refresh it a little bit because, I, like I said, conversation, but I have them all the way across the front of my house. And yeah. and I, I tell you, it's one of the – I mean, I love it because you never know what bloom you're going to get on That's this right. azalea. That's right. Uh, and like Jim was saying, you know, you can have them that come out a light pink, kind of a, uh, a shrimp color. Mm-hmm. Some of them are more whitish. And then I saw a picture, the one that you're talking about, where the bloom came out, but it's looked like somebody drew a line right down the center of that I've bloom. I've never seen that. And mm-hmm. it's completely on one side. It is one color, and right on the other side of the bloom, it's another color. Yeah. yeah. So very interesting plants. The Robin Hills are extremely cold hardy. Most of them don't get over three or four feet tall. Uh, they have great fall and winter foliage. They don't get red and ugly looking like a lot of the mm-hmm. azaleas do. They're they're really, really great plants. So, you know, do, do a little reading on the Robin Hills, and I think you'll be very pleased with any I of so those. agree with you. He's well, got, I think, 75 or so that actually went into uh, major production, but there's still, you see a lot of, uh, of, there's probably 15 or so that you still see a lot of. The Dorothy Reeves, you yeah. said was one. Yeah. Which is Congo, a, which yeah. is a brilliant purple, is one of my favorites. Couldn't, too. can be hard mm-hmm. to find some of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, when I saw a conversation piece in a row, I just fell in love with it. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. there's lots of azaleas that look good, but somehow that conversation piece was amazing. I agree. And do most of these Robin Hill varieties, Jim, have the uh, you know, the bigger bloom yes, of them. Yes, yes. And, and that was blooms. one of the reasons they started crossing these, to yeah. get that bigger bloom. A lot also. of doubles. Uh, and he and he provided a lot of stuff to other people to, to help do, uh, have high, they have Robin Hill in their genetics also. So it's uh, great, great to say is look for them, you know. Mm. Yeah, but, at least everybody, everybody's trying to make new plants. And, and that's why it's new so, colors. Yeah, and that's why so, sometimes it's so hard to match up. Some, somebody will bring in a bloom of an azalea oh, yes. and, and, you know, and, and, and four or five leaves and say, what azalea is this? Well, there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of different varieties of azaleas and out there. And you're lucky this morning you're listening to one guy who can identify most of them. Yeah, there Which he, is Jim, right? Jim, right? Right? Yeah. But it can be... It can be Pretty tricky because there's so many. There are so uh, many more now, yeah. you know, out there. In fact, I think a lady came in this past week 
and she had a bloom. Uh, and you could tell it was one of the older varieties. And I think it might have been Jim the Hampton Beauty. Remember that one? Oh, Raina? yeah. Love that. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these, you just don't see them anymore. They're still right. maybe out that's, there. That's yeah, it's, it's like, you know, rose. the knockouts destroyed the rose business, really. And I think the encores have pretty much destroyed the azalea business. Yeah. I was questioning that yeah, as well. You have to explain what you mean by that. I will. Yes, we know. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> back goodness. on my box here in just right. a minute. You're Thank listening to Mid-South Gardening. Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Um, let's see. Have we kind of finished the topic that we had before? Yeah, we, we finished talking over? about Robin Hills, you know. Yeah. So we talked about this two weeks ago, and I said the next show we would talk about it. And I asked you, do koi have eyelids? And because I, I got that question. Do, they do not. Yeah. So there you go. But I got that question, and I just stood there, and I was like, well, I want to say no. What a silly question. I think some there are some fish and uh, in fact, some sharks, I think, that have a translucent lid mm-hmm. that can close, but don't hold me to that. Seems like I remember that. Yeah. But um, well, well, that's amazing that koi have no eyelids. Um, but in the water garden department, you know, a lot of people struggle with doing water gardens. They don't want to, but yeah. it, it's an all of a balance. Like you need your underwater grasses to oxygenate the water cool the water, give fishes a place to spawn. And also, then you have to have, is it 60% of the top covered, like with something? That's ideal, yeah. Yeah, ideal 60%, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that would be by the lily pads or the lilies. Or the floating lettuce and the Oh yeah, that's the hyacinth and all. And then you have like the bog plants where you kind of put some bricks up or whatever and set them up on the top, but like I have a canna planted with um, Creeping Jenny and one other plant that's a, a bog plant. But they're all planted in one gallon, so I can just set them in there. And then you want to dechlorinate your water, um, add microbes to it. There's that, too. And um, water, you really want some water moving. I that, would much prefer yeah. movement yeah. of the, the water. That, yeah. yeah, Ideally, you know, if you have a filter system, your water should be turned once every two hours. So if you've got 1,000 gallons, you need to have a filter that's running 500 gallons of water per hour to make sure that it's uh, taking as much nitrogen out of the water as you can. And that's the whole purpose of the the filter is to, if you take the nitrogen out, then you have nothing for the algae to grow. Right, right. Yes, and so a filter actually keeps your water clear even if you didn't have plants in yes, there. Yes, yes. And yeah. Barbara, hang on just a second, but I also like the, the idea of moving water for, you know, mosquito control mm-hmm. and, and those kind of but things. But then I have so. tanks where I don't want moving water because, in fact, thanks to you bringing me soil last week, I planted four more lotus this week. So Heavy I'm, soil. Yes, yeah, so I, now I have and you know, 10 mm-hmm. varieties of lotus, uh, and I have a, another tank that's solid yeah. water lilies. So, I, you know, my actual water feature has no plants in it. Yeah. Because if it did, the koi would eat them. Right, yeah. right. You know? So you're going to enjoy them in, and in different And I'm having tanks. trouble with my wire mariner eating the, the 
lotus stems. Oh, and they're that's co- they're funny. Covered, it's not, they're covered with thorns. <laughs> it's it like it's not them. funny. Well, also on lotus, you have to grow them in a container, actually. Yes. Because then you're going to have a pond full. But, of course, the container mm. doesn't have holes. I mean, you're it's a... A container that holds water, like we got water garden plants in. It just in. looks like I got eight buckets of water on my on my deck. Yeah, yeah. and then all of a sudden you've got lotus growing out beautiful. It's pretty cool. You got a little BT. Uh, um, Bacillus donut. thuringiensis mm-hmm. or thurid. Uh-huh. Say thuringiensis. Thuringiensis. Yeah. Close thuringiensis. enough. BT. Yeah. For sure. So you can put that on to take care of caterpillars and things like that, but it doesn't hurt your fish. But if it you stops your mosquito larva, too. That's what oh, I'm yeah. doing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I have Little. water that's not moving. Oh, know. and you know, water lit- uh, lotus are so beautiful because when the water falls in and there's like a little bit of water in the middle of the a leaf, leaf. It looks like a diamond mm-hmm. just glowing. It's, it's beautiful. Okay, let's go to Barbara. Good morning, Barbara. You're in the garden. Okay. I have five azaleas out front, and three, of, and they're separated by a sidewalk, three on one side and two on another. Yeah. But the side with the three azaleas, two of them bloom earlier, and they're all the same. And then the next one is just now blooming. The other two are about through blooming. What causes this? Well, for the same varieties, yeah. it's going to be one of two things or a combination of them. One shaded by some other plant or the house, and that means as the sun moves, although it's it's changing the number of hours that those individual plants get. The other is heat, heat on the concrete, depending on temperature. how close the plants are to that concrete and how many of their roots are up underneath that. The sooner it warms up, the earlier they're going to bloom. So if you know if they're shading their own root system, that's going to slow them down. I mean, so it has to be Barbara. If they're the same variety, it has to be like Jim said. It's just a little micro environment. Yeah, uh, right. the amount yeah. of sun that they do or don't get, and how quick is that soil hitting up around that root system? Um, yeah, I know. Isn't that amazing? But we have so many microclimates here. And two of them probably get a little bit of shade from a mm-hmm. uh, small Japanese maple. Mm-hmm. And then the one that's blooming now is uh, right up to the sidewalk in a short brick wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, Jim, you got it. I mean, it's crazy. You would think that, but I'm, you know, you would think that even if, if they're the same variety, regardless of uh-huh. where they're planted and how much sun or shade they do or don't get, you would think that they would be blooming within a week of each other, you know? Me too. Yeah. Now, but Barbara, are well, we sure now they're the same variety? I'm almost, I've just bought this house, but five of them are identical. Okay. Same kind of hot pink color and yeah. everything. Then I have one that looks more like a George Tabor. I, I got you. One. So they might have different bloom cycles, too. But I'm really thinking what you said, Jim. But because, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and unfortunately, Barbara, there's not a thing you can really do about that unless, you know, you you create to where they all get, you know, the same amount of light. But like Jim said, a lot of times it's not just the light. It's also the temperature of the soil that makes a difference, too. Right. Now, as as they mature and get older and get larger, then they're going to have access probably to more sunlight, they're going to shade the entire uh, area, 
uh, with their own just from themselves, and you may see them get closer together. Okay. Okay, well, they're close together now. Well, I mean, well, you mean get, as far as the getting bloom. your bloom time closer. Oh, oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I hope so. It'd be pretty if all of them bloomed at the same time. <laughs> well, I'll do my best for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Thank you all a lot. Thank Thank Thanks, you. Barbara. Thank you. So um, I know you want to get to plants, so we can do that after, yeah. the, after the break. Yeah. But um, fun, we were talking about micro... Um, environment yes <laughs> is that what we were yes. talking about thank you well it, it and it, yeah the thing i was thinking is when you design your yard think of your micro environments when we were growing up in the spring our little micro environment was under the crepe myrtles and mimosa so we could make our pretend food on our little plates you so know, y'all were in plate. the shade yeah then in the springtime no i can't remember what i did in the summer then we're by the pond and we're mm-hmm. building we're doing a tent so we're in another micro environment mm-hmm. from the weather and in the winter then we built forts between the gullies so mm-hmm. you were getting down in it and you were away so there's another uh, micro environment and then in the fall we were in the tree grove basically in where the, the leaves house. were yeah. flowing the leaves were falling so then you make a big pile and jump on them and then later you have a bonfire so we had like four micro environments you could say so you can create that create that in your own yard like where's the north wind coming from you know when it's cold but it's usually you, from the north yeah, yeah. right in your yard <laughs> in your alias <laughs> the north wind well that's my problem i didn't know the north wind came from the north but a lot of times we we have them and we don't even realize i mean if you plant a let's say a tender plant um it, it, you, you, let's say a shrub okay mm-hmm. that you're planting up close to a brick wall uh that is somewhat isolated and insul- uh, or protected from the cold north winter winds a lot of times that plant will come back after a very harsh winter where mm. that same shrub that you got planted out there just in the open a lot of times will not come back because of a cold winter well there again it's, it's in a micro environment to where the the wall is protecting it from the cold winter winds the brick is actually holding mm-hmm. a lot of that heat for a much longer period of time so you know, it's funny how somebody can say, well, I, gr- I can grow that shrub. Yeah. And then I'm looking at myself like, I can't grow right. that shrub. What's the difference? Well, a lot of times it's the environment that mm-hmm. it's growing in, a micro environment yeah. that it's growing in. And a in. lot of that has to do with soil, too. We, there was somebody wanting to know about growing lilacs in the south. Great point. You know, and giving them first, picking some that are suitable for our heat here. But also lilacs like a pH up at 7 or just slightly above so you've got to get your pH on up there to for them to thrive. So here. if you have it, uh, and it needs to be away from anything so that air movement prevents powdery mildew. Right, but that's what I'm saying. But if you have a, that, if you have all of that going for you, you're going to have a much better chance of growing that lilac than I am. Exactly. Jim. But the azalea you planted beside it is going to go downhill in a heartbeat because of the high <laughs> pH. <laughs> yeah. And Good the same point. thing with lavender. Just take yeah. lavender, for example, and Jim mentioned lilac. Mm-hmm. Same difference. You know, you've got to have really good drainage. You need a high pH out there. Uh, but if you're growing lavender or lilacs and you've got the right conditions, and I'm trying to grow exactly the same plants, okay, mm-hmm. but I haven't gone out there and done the work and got my drainage the way I should have, I'm not going to be yeah. successful, and Jim is. Right. And even on small lot lines, you can create uh, different environments as well. And um, then, I w- then let's see, so you can 
Because if you're outside and the wind's blowing and it's cold, but it's sunny, it's good to stand where the wind's not blowing. So plant something to block you from there, from the wind coming in. And look at creeping fig, for example. You know, I love creeping figs. I love it. Mm -hmm. Growing on the wall. Well, some people can get it to come back even after winter like we had this past year. Zone 9 plant. Most people exactly can't get it to come back because of the exposure. We almost have a zone 9 and zero lot lines against a hot wall. Mm -hmm. But uh, it still died back, but it's come back. And then where we had ours was in a little crack between the sidewalk and a wall. And so it had all that heat. But you can't kill it. It still died down, but it's coming back up. Yeah. But it still dies off the wall. All right. Not all winters, but let's go a break. 260 <laughs> Good morning. Welcome back to Mid South Gardening. We've had a caller. Who left us a question? How to get rid of grass growing in his monkey grass? Ah, great question. Well, if he's actually trying to get rid of grass, like say Bermuda Bermuda. grass, uh, growing in monkey grass, um, there's grass be gone. uh, That's a ready to use product that you just spray in there. It will actually kill the Bermuda grass and not hurt the monkey grass. How does that work? Amazing. And then the monkey grass is a lily. Yeah, exactly, because it's not really a grass, Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's over there the top, go. over the top two. Uh, there's high yield grass killer, grass be gone. All these products do the same thing. They kill nothing but grasses, mm-hmm. and it's safe to use in what we call monkey grass. Right now, a lot of people also will have weeds growing in monkey like grass, like clover and right, clover like and that. dandelions, anything that has a broad leaf on it. Not so much a grass. Uh, there's a product called Image that you can mix with water and spray in there. So thank goodness there are products that we can spray in our monkey grass to kill those either grassy type weeds or Bermuda uh, or the broadleaf weeds and not harm the monkey grass. So I have to say, since, you know, I do the practice of as much organic as I can, I'm spraying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm spraying on that and, issue. And like I said, in, in, in high-yield grass killer, uh, fertilome over the top, mm-hmm. uh, the grass be gone, that's many in the ready-to-use, any of those. Many of those have labels to use over wildflowers. I mean, Ooh, you know, nice. they're that really? selective. I did not know that. Yeah, and the, just to take the grass out uh-huh. of it. So, oh, but I let me, love that. But let me say this also. But not nut grass. Nut grass isn't a grass. <laughs> it's a sedge. An image would control yeah. that in, right. in monkey but grass. But would it but get the wild leaves? But you can't spray flowers. image over wildflowers. Okay. Right. So. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but, but once I got the monkey grass area clean uh, through spraying whatever product I needed to spray with, because most things you can't use in monkey grass, but these you can uh, but once I got the bed clean, I would come back and put a pre-emergent in the bed. Uh, Dimension, for example, mm-hmm. uh, high-yield weed and grass stopper is the name of the product that you put out there dry. You come back and water it in. And what it's going to do is going to keep all that weed seed from coming back in uh, the monkey grass bed. Now, it won't keep Bermuda from mm-hmm. climbing in there. But it'd keep their seeds. that. Yeah. yeah. So it helps keep but the Bermuda monkey grass clean. Bermuda does seed here. 
I didn't think I'd seen. But See, it, would, it did in Texas. It was really pretty. Well, it would keep but, seeds from producing a seed here. head, but probably not viable seed. Well, that's so good to know. Arizona's <laughs> about the only place where you can, Bermuda has mm-hmm. a long enough growing season to produce yeah. viable seed. So hopefully that uh-huh. would help him get rid of those weeds uh, or grasses in his yeah. monkey grass. And some of the plants, y'all, that are, uh, that are pretty neat, uh, there's a new, uh, that new to me, that I've never seen it before, there's a golden arbovita called Forever Goldie. And it is, you know, I guess we're so used to seeing green arbovitas yeah. that this thing is a, almost like a yellow-looking arbovita. And it, but it doesn't look anemic. It looks really it looks cool. really, yeah. Yeah, and it's going to get, you know, 10 to 12 foot tall and 3, 3 and a half foot wide. Is it a thread leaf, or is it more, look more like a Jim, traditional arbovita? It looks arbovita. more like a traditional oh, arbovita. Yeah. It, is, cool. it is really cool looking, I'm telling you. Cool. Uh, Forever Goldie. And, and even in containers... Um, you know, uh, you, of course, eventually, you know, you typically put them in the ground because they arbovitas do get larger. But it is a neat, neat looking ar- uh, arbovita called Forever Goldie, and we've talked about this one, the Orange Rocket Barberry, uh, which you know, a barberry. You know, a lot of times I'll walk by a barberry and never give it a yeah. second look. But man, these Orange Rockets are really. pretty pretty barberries yeah. and they don't go a long time without leaves no they lose their leaves but not for a long then it's kind of a poorly red mm-hmm. uh, more upright if you will i, I mean they'll like get that. four foot tall and about one and a half foot wide great for containers and i'm telling you i've seen people mm-hmm. use these orange rocket barberries uh and with like yellow anything mm-hmm. around them nice and it is a great combination i'm telling four you four of them side by side and nobody's going through your daughter's exactly. window exactly <laughs> yeah. So the orange rocket barberry, keep that one in, in, in mind. And the, and of course, you know we're always talking about the uh, the lower petalums, you know the the plants that have the purple foliage and a mm-hmm. pink bloom. Uh, just to kind of give people there are so many different sizes. The purple pixie, you know, the dwarf weeping uh, lower petalum, it's only going to get one to two foot tall, three to four foot wide. And then the step up above that one is called uh, purple daydream. It's going to get two to three foot tall. And three to four foot wide, and then it goes to purple diamond. It gets four to six foot tall and four to five foot wide. But my point is, if you're going to play and plant with lower petalums, make sure that you get the one that's going to fit your right. spot. Because now they're not all big. Does that sound familiar? Do the same thing with crepe myrtle. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Uh, but but I'm beginning to like a lot lower of these petalum. lower petalums. In fact, I saw some yesterday that had been planted up against a wooden fence. Mm. And they had been, she- well, I shouldn't say sheeted. They'd been pruned to where they were, like, up against the fence, if you will. Yeah. Um, kind of a living the wall. back off. Yeah, yeah. And it looked really good. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that if we get some crazy winters like we did this year, even last year, you can have some of the foliage on these lower pelums get, get cooked. Yeah, last year. Yeah. Well, uh, but, you know, they're semi-evergreen here technically. Right, right. You know. We've been lucky. We've had some fairly mild winters, and they've you know kept their foliage. But I can remember some cold winters where they went totally naked. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Every leaf came off yeah. of them. And then lastly, and this plant's been around for 100 years, is the old Blue Point Juniper. And the only reason mm-hmm. I'm bringing this up, that gets about 12 foot tall, about 8 foot wide. But to me, a Blue Point Juniper is a good substitute for an Arbovita, okay? Yeah. Because Agreed. a lot of people have trouble, for whatever reason, growing Arbovitas. And the biggest thing with arbovitis is, of course, here we go again, good drainage, right? Right. Okay, let's go to David. Good morning, David. You're in the Mid-South Garden. 
Good morning. How's everybody doing? Hey, Dave. Good morning to you, buddy. Good morning. Love y'all show. Thank you so much for, for doing this every Saturday. Yeah, we appreciate, you. appreciate you calling in. Yes, sir. Got a, got a quick question for you because y'all just discussed it. Um, uh, you said uh, for the for the uh, for the spray for the grass, monkey grass, the, yeah, and the larope, yeah, monkey grass, yeah, yes, yes. What about mondo, dwarf mondo? Because I've got some coming out now. I forgot what y'all told said. Yeah, works on that too. How to get that out? How to get grass out of your mondo? Yeah, is that the same same product? Same spray? Yeah, same product. Yep, it'll right. sure do it. Doesn't that, that make you happy that now you don't have to sit the out only, there and The only pull? exception is if you're getting zoysia in there. Zoysia can metabolize it and actually grow out of it. Uh, the professional label of, of these products have a label to remove Bermuda out of zoysia lawns. So uh, you may have to do some digging and, or multiple applications. If it's to, zoysia, Jim. Yeah, it weaken it down to where it will eventually die. Bermuda. Bermuda, get it one shot. It just has to be green. All right. Thanks, David, for the call. Thanks, we got Dave. to run because it's time to tell y'all goodbye. But you can listen on our podcast. You can hear everything. Yeah, this one this morning with ice is uh, it, this is going to be classic. <laughs> going to need to listen to this one over and over again and see if you can make some sense out yeah. of it. <laughs> it just makes sense. I'm going to go home and experiment with more stuff. All right, we will see you next weekend in the Mid-South Garden, and don't forget to drink water.